Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Art of Generation Community Playthrough Wrap-Up for September 2014. I'm your host, Rich. We've got an exciting show this month. We are discussing two very popular titles, Eco for the PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, and Suicoden 2, which unfortunately was only released on the PlayStation 1. In the Eco discussion, I'll be joined by all of the usual co-hosts, Floyd, Sean, and Jamie, as we all finish the game this month. And on the retro side, Sean takes a turn at hosting the Suicoden 2 segment and is rejoined by our guest from the Suicoden podcast, RF Generation's own Sir Psycho. Please remember, you can find this podcast on YouTube and download it from Podomatic and iTunes. Also, remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter if you haven't already so that you can discuss the show with us. And as always, you can leave us feedback or discuss these games further on rfgeneration.com. Thanks, and we hope you enjoy the show. September community playthrough. Again, we switched sides, and I ended up on the retro side while Rich took the modern side. We went back to a series that we played a couple months ago, which was Sui Coden on the original PlayStation. For September, we did Sui Coden 2. And despite much enthusiasm and a great playthrough on the first game, the Sui Coden 2 playthrough was not nearly as successful. And there are a few reasons for this, and we should just get them, get them out of the way before we discuss the game. Number one, the game is largely very rare and very expensive. Um, although a lot of people c claim that they had copies of the game or were willing to shell out for a copy of the game because of how much they liked the first game, uh, we only had seven people actually sign up, and uh, most of them didn't post past the post in which they signed up for the playthrough. Also, when uh, having played as many RPGs as we've played recently, having just done the original Sui Coden and Chrono Trigger, looking at a 40 to 60 hour RPG to play in September is a little bit of a daunting task. And I believe that's why many of our members of the seven who signed up I believe only Dougley007 is going to finish the game, and he's not posting a lot about the game. He's kind of lost in the game. And as a matter of fact, uh, I'm going to take the opportunity now. I would be remiss if I didn't introduce uh, my guest who's with me today, our resident, ev uh, resident evil. Yes. Our resident evil. <laughs> Keep that. <laughs> our resident Sui Coden, expert on RF Generation, Sir Psycho. Psycho, welcome back to the show. All right, and this is Grey Ghost right here. Yeah, thanks. I'm Grey Ghost, 81, as you know me on the forum. So now that I got all my nervousness of actually hosting a segment kind of out of the way and all the, all the mess-ups, let's talk about Sui Coden 2. And Psycho, if you have anything to add, we were discussing a little bit before we got on the air, the failures of the playthrough. 
if you have anything to add, I, I, and I don't mean to disparage any, like we have had good months and bad months. We've had, you know, for every Parasite Eve, we have a crazy taxi for our Suicode in one. Now we have a Suicode in two. It didn't go as well. And that's what's going to happen when you're on a small, you're in, we're in kind of a small community. The, the message board doesn't move very fast. It's not that much traffic. So when you get six or seven people together that say they're going to play a game, and it happens to be this massive RPG that we, you know, we expected everybody to play in a month, which maybe we sh that's another reason, uh, you know, if we did a game this long, it should have been maybe been two months. All right, yeah, you can beat this in 20 hours if you skip everything. But who wants to skip everything, you know? Oh, and that's <laughs> if you're going for Clive's quest. Right. Well, even even as I was uh, saying it when we played the first game, I, I got more into it uh the second time I played it and you know, it gets, you know, it gets addictive trying to, uh, recruit everybody. And it's again, a very open-ended game. And speaking of which you mentioned off the air that there really should have been checkpoints. And that's, I totally own up to that as the host of the game. I kind of bailed on the checkpoints when after playing in the first week before the playthrough actually started, I didn't get far enough into the game to post a first week's checkpoint and I kind of just copped out and said, well, there's no, there's going to be no checkpoints. And I think that kind of left everybody where they could have used a little bit of guidance, uh, for that kind of motivation. I know you asked me about the halfway point and other than week three, I think I would have had some pretty good checkpoints for everybody. Right. And you know, I'm with that, and I wish I'd have asked you sooner. Um, and I only asked at the midway point because the thread was already on life support by then, and I needed something. Yeah, it was just me trying to be as funny as possible. Right. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, Sir Psycho, thank you for at least trying to uh, put some relevant information on the thread for the game. But anyway, let's, uh, you know, enough kicking, kicking ourselves for how bad the playthrough went. This still is an amazing game. And still, if you didn't, if you didn't participate in our playthrough, you didn't finish the game for the playthrough, highly encourage that you go and play this game, pick it up, especially if you played the first one with us. Um, it's definitely a classic RPG of all time. And, uh, you know, with that said, let's get into actually the game itself and what makes the game great. Yeah, this game, when it first came out, it was kind of received with the lukewarm review scores and a reception. But as time went on, it's kind of become sort of the earthbound of the PS1 in that game that really becomes loved after the system's life cycle. As people go back and discover it and realize, this is fantastic. That's a good, uh, that's a very good analogy. And I, I found it kind of surprising that it, it got the lukewarm reviews that it did. And I, I saw it noted somewhere that um, a lot of people said it was too similar to the first game. And I wonder if these reviewers spent enough time with Sui Coden 2 to realize... It's much all different. The, not only is it much different, but how m many improvements were made on you know the promises of the first game you know what i mean like as we discussed in the segment for sui coden one uh, of the podcast there were so many that there, there weren't like things you know major problems with sui coden one but you could see as you were playing it the room for improvement and i feel like sui coden two 
basically delivered on everything that you've e- even as playing Suicune One, you felt like th- oh they could they could have done this better. Oh yes, I know. Back in the first one, a lot of people complained about inventory, and that was completely revamped in number two to the point where a lot of the headache of uh, managing individual inventories for every single character is pretty much gone. You basically have your armor slots, and then you have three extra item slots where you can put accessories and healing items or scrolls, which are basically magic spells, so that you can heal up or do damage in a pinch. And the whole rune system was completely revamped, too. In the first one, you could have two runes on a character. One on their weapon, and then one on their person. And if somebody already came with a rune, they were probably locked from one of those. So in Suikoden 2, you had a possibility of four runes now, with uh, rune slots on the head in each hand, and then the weapon slot as well. And there's some pretty cool stuff you can get on the weapons. I actually got the silence rune in this game, which is... You only get it at one point in time. Uh, you have to have it drop from a very specific set of Highland soldiers at a very specific point in the game. And if you miss it, you never have a chance to get it again. But I got it in this playthrough. And then I silenced the bosses, and it was awesome. Is that a traditional uh, silence, just meaning that they can't cast after you use it on them? Yeah, they can't use magic, which a lot of the bosses have magic that will affect the entire party. So you, ne- right. you negate that, and they're limited to their physical attacks, and it was pretty much slicing their hamstring. That's awesome. Um, so another major improvement that was made in the game uh, would be the graphics. Um even though the, the first game had some great sprite work, some awesome environments, uh, some really great attention to detail, the second game uh, just blew this out of the water. The, the, even the character portraits were a lot sharper. Every, the animations on the sprites, they, you know, they added as you know, however many more frames it was or whatever. Um, and everything in this game is just really beautiful and pops off the screen, even more so than the first game. Oh, yeah, the graphics were really a big step up. Um, the backgrounds kind of have the same 3D look in battles as the first game. And then you have the moving camera comes back, but it just seems like everything's a bit more detailed. Right, and speaking of the moving camera, I, it might just be me, but I felt that it was a little bit more dynamic, especially in some of those... Um, you know, special attack animations, which, you know, you all know that I love those. I mentioned that a few times on this show. Um, and, uh, I mean, while we're on graphics, another major improvement that I know you wanted to talk about was the music. And I know you were big on the music on the first game, and I know how you feel on the uh, the music here. Why don't you elaborate a little on that? Uh, basically, in the first game, there's a lot of short loops. So it's not like the songs are bad, but they play so much to where they get ground into your head, and you kind of find them annoying after a little while. But the first game, or the second game now, everything has its own theme. And I know a lot of people from the first one kind of complained about Headquarters, because it's like a minute-long loop, and you spend so much time there, and it's a really obnoxious little theme. But now your Headquarters has a really nice, soothing kind of uh, number that is pretty relaxing to just kind of roam around in. And also, the headquarters has changed immensely for number two. 
In the first one, you kind of just took up residence in this little hollow piece of rock in the middle of a lake, and you just kind of carved crap onto it. But in number two, you basically take a ruined village and rebuild it. And it really feels like it's a village. There's people that roam around town. You can see your stars of destiny walking down the street. Sometimes they'll be in a bar. Other times they'll be watching your dancer. Uh, sometimes they're running away from other stars of destiny, like how Flick is always running away from Nina. And it just feels a lot more live. Yeah, and you bring up a good point. Um, obviously, there's a lot of recurring characters from the first game. And what is it? It's supposed to be 10 years, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, it's yes. actually only three. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, three years after the events of the first game. So you, you have a lot of recurring characters um, continuing their own stories. And um, they're, again, many of them are recruitable uh, to your cause. And then uh, there's a point for those that played one. This is kind of a spoiler, but you go, you go on a diplomatic mission to Gregminster, which you remember playing there from Suikoden One. Mm-hmm. And um, President Mustache is there. Basically, your hero from the first game becomes president, and then like just like walks out, and then Lapont fills his shoes because who can deny Lapont and his massive mustache? That's right. Okay, so uh, while we're on the subject of the castles and the people, I guess we could talk a little bit about how the the battle systems st- some some stayed the same largely, and some had some major changes. And um, I'll just say that the the normal battle system uh, stays largely the same, right? You have your, your six on six with, like you said, the, the 3d backgrounds with the sprites on them. It's kind of the same as the first game. The menus are a little bit better. Um, and then you have the same dynamic camera jumping all around the familiar sound effects. Even the duels also are largely the same. Um, but you know what? I, I want to let you talk about the other two battle systems because I'm going to be honest I uh, especially when we get to the uh, strategic ones I leaned on Apple so much that I felt like I wasn't actually playing those uh, strategy portions so if you could just talk about the duels uh, and the uh, strategy battles yeah the duels are mostly the same they say something and that means they're going to do that specific attack based on what they say and then you have to counter it, rock, paper, scissors style, like in the first game. But the uh, the strategic system is entirely different. In the first game, they're basically staring each other down, and then you pick from a menu what you want to do. If you want to use any specific skills to give you an advantage, if you want to know what your enemy does, you just use ninjas and win. In the second game, it's pretty much like playing Fire Emblem. Yeah, it is. You know, you have your units on a grid and you move them to attack and it it, it really is just a strategy game. And I think you mentioned in the last uh, podcast that it could have been a game all its own if they had, you know, just expanded it, made more battles out of it. It could have been its own strategy game. Yeah, it's definitely not as deep as a Fire Emblem or a Shining Force. It only pops up occasionally, then I think it does the job really well. And there's all kinds of different types of units, too. So there is some depth there. Like, you have infantry, you have cavalry, you have archers, mounted archers, you have magicians. You got all kinds of people. 
and each one is stronger against another type, and you get those cool animations. I posted some screenshots of it uh, early on in the playthrough before we realized it was completely dead. So it's the same, um, the same kind of principles of one thing beats another, uh, correct? Like uh, just a more complex version of that? Yeah, there's some dice rolling, so it's not always cavalry is going to beat infantry, but it's probably going to do pretty decent when it's in melee range against archers. Um, you know, you can have Victor. There's a video on YouTube of somebody just using Victor and only Victor and winning, like, the last battle. Wow, that's pretty insane. Yeah, because Victor's super OP in this game. <laughs> right. Sp right. At least in the strategy section. And you'll notice each unit kind of has its own attack and defense stat. It's not really set in stone. Like I said, there's some dice rolling going on. A 12 isn't always going to beat a 10. All right, so let's get into the story, I guess, unless you you have anything more to say about any of the uh, any of the types of the battle systems. Uh, not really. Most of the early ones are pretty scripted, so you only have, like, one unit to control, whereas the AI takes over the rest, so even having Apple do everything for you, she's only doing a little bit everyone else is doing what they're pre-programmed to do but when in the end of the game when it opens up then it becomes really satisfying to control everybody and have them do exactly what you want to do right right especially since Shu is awesome and uh for those that didn't really play but you played the first game Shu is the strategist so he's basically matthew's replacement right okay um all right so as for the story um like you said, continuing three years after the events of the first game. And we start in an army camp. And I'm going to be honest, all the political... I, I know there's like... It's kind of a, a similar story to the first game, right? There's a there's a city-state, there's an imperial army, there's, a, there's another army. Uh, like, I'm an idiot when it comes to this stuff. Um, but I, I, I actually... And I'll get into this actually after you explain the uh, military stuff. I, I was always more connected with the three main characters of this game. So could could you just give me a rundown of like uh, who was fighting who, like from from the army's uh, you know perspective? All right. When the game starts off, you are Rio and Joey Atreides. And you hail from Kiaro in the in the kingdom of Highland, and you, so you start off. You're in the Unicorn Brigade, which is basically like a youth training unit for um, the military of Highland. And then the game pretty much kicks off with a bang from there. But there's also uh, the city states of Jouston, which various different cities and all of them have their own military style and their own political style highland is the aggressor so you actually start being a member of an invading force but the whole purpose behind the invasion is unveiled right at the start of the game because basically what you hear is that the populations on both sides of the war are tired of fighting the people are just get really weary of war so they want it to end but then King Luca, or Prince Luca Blight, he's not the king yet, but Prince Luca comes in and slaughters the Unicorn Brigade, his own soldiers, and then blames it on the city-states to get the support of the population back for his war. And it also 
gives him a chance to catch the city-state with its pants down, because they think that Highland is going to, um, I think that Highland is going to respect the peace treaty they just signed, and Luca has no intentions of doing that. That's kind of the whole startup for the game. And then Ryu and Joey are basically the only ones that escape. You don't run into anyone else that escaped. And then Ryu gets taken prisoner by our good buddies from Suikoden 1, Victor and Flick, who are right. who are running a mercenary company under the employ of Muse, one of the city-states. And then the whole game starts from there. But you get to see really good characters right from the beginning. You get to see the villainous nature of Luca Blight within five minutes of you starting the game. And his right-hand bumbler who can't do anything right, Captain Roud. Right. And I must say, Luca Blight, to me, is one of the most sinister and evil villains that I can think of in a video game. And I know there are many, you know, video games run on sinister and evil villains. (coughs) (laughs) Right. I've actually never played Final Fantasy VI, but I know all about Kafka. Uh, He's just a Um, ripoff of Palamecia from FF2, but whatever, I'll go into that. I'll go into that another day. (laughs) I'll take your word for it. All right. But the scene with Luca Blight where he's telling the woman to squeal like a pig and then he strikes her down anyway was so shocking to me. And and then just like 10 minutes later, right after you fight him at the fort, he's about ready to slice a little four-year-old girl's neck. That's a testament to this game and maybe at least in my opinion how... That can be like so shocking and visceral to see from like a little sprite on the screen with some text. You know, the the emotion that the programmers evoked um, and that the animators could portray, it's just amazing. I I don't think I've ever experienced anything like it, um, even in a modern game. It just gets crazier and crazier. There's a point, there's a point later in the game where he beheads one of his own generals because he fails to attack your headquarters right after you establish it and you're at your weakest but Shu is a genius and managed to win and then uh that well we're skipping ahead but i don't you can skip ahead (laughs) no feel free go for it there's a lot that happens in between um muse gets attacked uh victor's girlfriend was like the mayor of muse and so you get to see victor this giant bear of a man and he has a crush on the red-headed mayor of Muse. And then you get a really awesome plot twist out of this whole game, which one of the running themes of this game is destiny. Because you hear about, um, there was a war between Highland and the city-states like 30, 40 years ago, before the game. The leaders of that one, that war, were Han Cunningham on Highland and Ginkaku for the city-states. And Ryo and his adopted sister Nanami studied under a man named Ginkaku who basically just lived in the country right next to some town and taught them martial arts and he was content with that after fighting a war and being one of the leading men behind it so at the beginning of the game you get teased all the time by being like oh we're going to tell you about Ginkaku oh well she died so we can't hear it from him from her and then victor finally tells you after you get your headquarters so there's all kinds of stuff that happens really quickly after the after the mercenary camp falls and then you end up finally establishing your headquarters you beat the crap out of solon g solon g gets its head chopped off 
and then the assassination was actually done by Joey, our best friend, and then he somehow, despite being labeled a traitor, gets really close to Luca, and then ends up being Solanji's replacement. The thing about Genkaku and Han is that they were said to be best friends, so before a battle they would like get together in between the army camps and just like drink tea and play chess or whatever it is they wanted to do. So you have um, basically have the same thing happening. Two best friends on the opposite side of a war and they both have the same runes that their uh, predecessors have. Again, the runes play a pivotal role in the story and the flow of this game and the series. Uh, yeah, it's all about the... Uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the, the runes run through the whole series as well as the Stars of Destiny. I think you've mentioned that yeah, it's, uh, in the previous show. That's Each game generally has a different rune, but you'll see some that recur. Um, I think the only one that made, makes it through the first three is Luke and his true wind rune. Mm, okay. So, yeah, w w there's definitely, you know, for a long for a game that can be incredibly long, it is is it, it is very well paced, and there is a lot going on. Uh, again, so much so that a lot of it could, could well, some of it went over my head. Again, I, I was more into the characters of uh, the main character and Joey and uh, Nanami, uh, who's the main character's sister, and their relationships together. Um, I actually just wanted to throw in, as a quick aside, we could talk about the um, the optional, like, now there's there's two possible outcomes at the end of the game, two endings, but I actually want to talk about the, like, quit halfway through the game ending. Um, yeah, you, and, you, you can basically just decide to run away with Nanami and then stuff goes down. Right, exactly, and this this is a cr kind of a crazy thing to to have in a game like this. But I actually I did it. I had a you know I had two saves going, so I said, "Well, let me try it." And I thought that that's kind of crazy. It's like, all right, you could just let me give up, but it definitely leaves you with a feeling you do not feel like you did the right thing. And again, that's that's how effective the the drama is in this game. Like, I, you could never leave the game like that and walk away from it. Yeah, definitely. That ending really makes you feel like you failed. Exactly, exactly. On the other hand, you can you can understand the temptations of the character to to not have this, you know, the burden of 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 the war, you know, on them, and you know, not wanting to risk their lives and the lives of their loved ones, but. It's. Uh, I just thought it was an interesting thing. You know, it's not the only game in the world that has that. There, are, there are other games that, uh, you know, have optional like kind of. I was gonna say trap door, but I guess I mean like a side door <laughs> ending to a game. But this, this, this is one of those games, and it's pretty interesting. Um, so yeah, I don't know what else we can hit on. I'm afraid, you know, in this segment of the show, you know. Psycho, we just recorded Sui Coden 1. The games are, you know, as much as it's improved, as much as it's very different in a lot of ways, it's very similar in a lot of ways, and I don't want to just retread everything from the, the first show. Um, but I wonder, just open-endedly, is there anything else you want to throw in here, um, you know, about the story, the characters, the systems, anything? like? I would say that the first part of the game that I just kind of did a quick rundown of is really 
one of the it's a great part of the game but it just continues to get better and better every event you go to every town you go to feels important it has something that you have to do there and it's not always exactly how you would expect it to unfold and that's really the way the game keeps you on your toes so um you know you're trying to get the rest of the city-states that haven't fallen or that have fallen liberated or keeping them away from being directly controlled by Highland and you know after Muse you go to South Window and then they get taken over pretty quickly like right after you get there and then you have to basically just win the area back then you go to Two River you spend some time in Green Hill and that's where you run into Joey for the first time after he becomes a general. Then Matilda, after that, you're trying to ally with the Knights, which has the most militaristic city. You kind of want them on your side, but their leader is a massive douchebag <laughs> who has some backdoor dealings with Highland. You figure that out. Right. And But basically half of his Knights rebel against him and join you anyway, so it all works out. Mm-hmm. And then, right after that, there's the side quest with uh, Humphrey and Futch, which a lot of the first game players will remember. And they'll also remember Futch's dragon. Well, right. this whole side quest ends up with you getting Futch a new dragon. But you don't expect it, because dragons aren't supposed to be on mountains. They're supposed to be in caves. But you find this dragon egg, and then it hatches right after you beat this boss. And it's the complete opposite of black. It's a white dragon with blue eyes. And uh, you can make some Yu-Gi-Oh jokes right there if you want. But <laughs> Futch names the dragon Bright. And Futch actually comes back in Suikoden 3. And Bright is all grown up. And Suikoden 3's battle system is designed in a different way than number 2. You can end up with uh, characters mounted. There's a griffin that your main character can mount. And Futch can mount up on Bright. And, okay. and then you have different battle options with the mounting compared to when they're separate. But um, watching Futch grow up from being like a young, hot-headed kid with a smart mouth to in Suikoden 3 being a teacher is a really interesting story. And uh, Suikoden 2 is the bridge between the two. Right. That's pretty cool. And, you know, I meant, as I mentioned in the first show, that, that he was one of my favorite side, you know, characters. So it's cool to hear that he continues on in the series. I haven't played anything beyond these first two games. So um, I've always been looking forward to playing the rest of them. Uh, so I would at least pick up five soon because it's the more expensive PS2 one. And I think it's climbing upwards still. Yeah, it. I I'm fortunate to have all of them. You know, I have all of them already, so uh, they're all queued up. They're just in my backlog right now. But it's it's the age old question of do I continue a series that I've already played or start a new one that I already have a pile of. But anyway, that's a digression for a, maybe a different uh, podcast on RF Generation. But anyway. Um, I was wondering, just to completely change gears on one thing real quick I wanted to mention, is that, and this is kind of random, but I think the cover art for this game, uh, and it's surprising, you know, even on the, after the 
abomination that was the North American cover art of the first game when they had they had such a beautiful you know uh, option to use that they use in the Japanese game and they just put this awful crap on the North American cover. But but then that, they used the Japanese artwork on the freaking manual. Exactly. It's like I don't get it. <laughs> But but for the second game, they got it right. I, and, oh, man, did they get it right. I mean, this this is just such a beautiful cover. Oh, yeah. And I love looking at my uh, Prima guide for Suikoden 2 because it's the cover art blown up. Yeah, that that must be nice. I was thinking, and they, they have to exist, that a, a nice, like, framed poster or at least like a framed print not necessarily even poster sized but like you can get, get suikoden posters but i've looked into them they're not cheap and they're all from japan really yeah well, i mean <laughs> this this probably ranks and if you haven't seen it please look it up the the cover art for suikoden 2 it's um it's just breathtaking what you know it's it's uh, it's amazing it, it might be my fa- my favorite cover of all time. I'm not sure. I'd have to look around, but uh, everything just kind of falls into the three characters, and then you look at the background, and the characters are detailed, but they're kind of in like a grayscale, and then the three main characters are in full color. Right. So it kind of shows off the importance of like these are the most important, and everyone behind them plays a role. It gets you interested because you're not used to seeing an RPG that has a crap ton of characters on the cover. Most people, when Suikoden 1 even came out, were used to an RPG having, like, maybe eight people as characters. Eight or nine, at most. Right. And what, and, and one of the reasons I bring this up, and it's not just to say, ooh, look at the pretty artwork, but as, as a collector, it's something that, <laughs> like, the cover of Earthbound looks really weird, and, like, the cover of... Like, I know Eco isn't uh, as collectible as oh, it used yeah. to be. The value dropped. But, I mean, that horrible uh, cover art for Eco. The Japanese this, one is so good, too. Exactly. Exactly. But there's so many examples of, you know, rare and valuable games that have, like, either blah or just <laughs> really ridiculously bad cover art. So Mega this is Man. A shining, right, right. Exactly. Mega Man 1. Probably the all-time worst. But, I mean, just... I, you know, I know it sounds silly to talk about cover art, but this is, you know, this is a collector's community. And I think this, this is something that from every aspect of looking at this game, you can be proud to have it in your collection. And I'm sure you would agree on that. Uh, I'm proud to have this game in my collection. Uh, until recently, it was also the priciest game in my collection, but then I got into Saturn. Right. And you, I'm, you got a Panzer Dragoon Saga? Is that... Yeah, what I'm thinking about. Yeah, that, yeah that's okay. my that's my number one now, and my working designs one. I think all are just about. I think actually, I think only Dragon Force is that high anymore still. Yeah, I saw, and now we're really digressing. But I saw that day you posted all that stuff you got from Tin Star, and I was very jealous because all again, all those games are pretty beautiful, and most of them are pretty good to play too. So. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> for a, for a shameless plug, I've reviewed most of those working designs games on my yeah, no, on my blog. So check it out on rfgeneration.com. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, before we get going way too off track, I wanted to mention probably the act- the absolute climax of the game. Yeah, definitely. What and and if if you're good, I mean, why don't we wrap up with that? If you want to. Uh, 
you know, we'll talk about the end of the game and, and that'll be that if you're good with it. Yeah, basically, you know, with the way that everyone's been describing Luca Blight and everything that you've heard about him, even if you've never played the game, he has to die. He has to. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much where I said the halfway point of the game is. It may not be exactly in the middle of the game, but it marks such a huge shift in tone and tension that it definitely marks, it's definitely the most important shift in the entire game. And the way you do it is, if there's any other character death in RPG history that comes close to Luca Blight's, it's Gallifs from Final Fantasy V. But um, Luca Blight, the way you take him down is basically both sides work together. As weird as that sounds, the Highlanders want him dead because he's leading, they think they're leading his, the country into ruin. And most of Luca's generals end up pledging their support secretly to Joey. So there's a big shift. Joey ends up doing some political maneuvers to where he ends up marrying uh, Luca's sister, Jillia. So he's kind of lining himself up behind the scenes. And then everyone, you know, the other generals saw that Luca just shamelessly, without a second thought, just executed one of his right-hand man because he lost one battle. So they, they fear for themselves and they fear for the country because they love their country. And that's really where the villains of this series stand out, is that their motives are actually sensible. They're not really out, unless you're Luca Blight, you're not really out to just destroy everything, just to destroy it. And even Luca has reasons behind doing why he wants, doing what he wants to do to the city-state. But um, basically, the way the way you kill him is you have to build up three full parties of six characters. So make sure you're switching people out while you run through the game. Right. And then you fight three different battles with him. And then between the battles, he's taking arrows to the, he's taking arrows to the legs, the knees. Make a joke there if you want. Take, <laughs> taking them to the chest, taking them to the arms. And even the Suikoden Encyclopedia that was released in Japan, the actual creator of the series said, Luca Blight is the most powerful mortal in this world, in the history of this world. The only ones that are more powerful are the true rune wielders, and that's because they're immortal and have ridiculous powers. But Luca is number one when it comes to mortal men, and it definitely feels that way, because you have 18 people fighting him on top of a bunch of archers shooting him from range, and then it all gets topped off with a one-on-one duel between him and Ryo. Right. And again, the... Just to throw out the sprite work and the animations here are top notch. Like you won't see anything better, in my opinion, uh, than in these scenes. What's going on? It's beautifully well done, and that really shows the power of the direction of this game and how Yoshitaka Murayama, the creator of this series, is an underrated genius when it comes to storytelling, narrative, and game design. Yeah, I I completely agree. At least for these first two games. Now, does does he stay on for the whole series? The same director? No, he steps down from Konami when they were about eighty percent done with Suikoden Three. Okay. So he had nothing to do with four and five, and tactics. Okay. And the newer ones. Very interesting. Um, do you have any interest? Um, well, first of all, are, are you are you done? 
Are you good wrapping up the story? I didn't mean to cut you off there. If you have anything else to say, I'm sorry. Um, pretty much the story after that, the focus is entirely on the similar uh, storytelling mechanic that I mentioned earlier with how Genkaku and Han are best friends, but they're fighting on opposite sides of a war for different ideals. That's the way the game shifts after Luca's death. Uh, right. It becomes much more focused on the destiny of Ryu and Joey standing on opposite sides of a battlefield on opposite sides of a war doing what they do. And the game does that. The game actually does a pretty good job leading into the setting for Suikoden 3 because um, later in the game there's the grassland tribe chief uh, Lucia joins the war on the side of Highland and um, she's actually the main character's mother from Suikoden 3 because between 1 and 2 there's a 3 year time skip. Between 2 and 3 there's 15 years. So, okay. So... Lucia, between Suikoden and 2 and 3, she goes from hot-headed youth out for the revenge of her father's assassination to certified MILF. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so let, why, don't you, uh, why don't you take us out with a, re- a recommendation of Suikoden 3? I've played Suikoden 1 and 2. Uh, Let's say I really like 2D sprite work. Uh, convince me to play Suikoden 3, the series' uh, first transition into 3D. Oh, didn't you know that 3D is always better than 2D? Or at least that's what the PlayStation <laughs> told me. Exactly. Well, the times have changed, haven't they? But anyway, <laughs> at the time when 3D was king, uh, Suikoden 3 on the PlayStation 2... Uh, like I said, I want to play it. Can you just briefly uh, tell me why I should go for it? It's actually kind of hard because Suikoden 3 takes a few steps forward in areas, and in other areas it takes steps backwards. Okay. Um, the world exploration is much different. Instead of the big open world maps, I think it was a result of the game wanted to go 3D, but they didn't really have the budget. So instead of having a big open world, you end up with uh, like a line graph with points on it, and then you go from point to point when you want to go from place to place. So instead of running through a field, you go to the point that says field, and then you run through the field for like three screens, and then you go to the next town or whatever. Okay. I've played, yeah, I've played RPGs like that. I can't name any off the top of my head. Uh, I think a few of the Tales games are like that. But okay, I, I can live with that. So what else? All right, the problem with that system is that there's a lot of backtracking. So you will be praying for Vicky, and she is a godsend in this game. Oh, so oh. it's not actually fast travel until you get Vicky, uh, as yes. usual. Okay, okay. Until then, it's like, okay, the beginning of the game, you run through the field. But any time you have to get to anything on the other side of the field, you have to run through the field again. Okay, yeah, that does sound a little tedious. Uh, the one-on-one dual systems haven't changed. That's okay. a- As much as the people didn't really care for it in the first game, it doesn't really get changed until 5. Um, the one the tactical battles are basically like the map system. It's like a line graph with a bunch of points and you gotta defend it. But also your character's direct battle stats translate to the uh, tactical battles. So you can't really go, you can't really throw level 20s in 
when your main characters are level 50. So the game kind of becomes more of a time sink by having to level everyone up, and you have to make money to properly equip them too. So that's kind of a strength and a weakness with the tactical battle system of three. No, I mean, it sounds like it sounds different, but me, you know, being the PlayStation 2 fanatic that I am, again, I know I'm going to play this game eventually. Um, it is likely not going to be a community playthrough, just <laughs> just so you all know. But um, yeah, I'm going to end up playing it one of these days. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, so, Sir Psycho, if there's, unless there's anything else uh, you'd like to throw in about Sui Coden 2 or Sui Coden in general, I know that it's, you know, it's your favorite and I know you probably could talk for hours on it. But like I said, we're, you know, I don't want to just rehash the whole first show. Uh, I, I just give us a, a extremely strong recommendation to this game. And in, in a perfect world, we would have had a lot of people playing through this game did a couple things wrong with the playthrough but it's a you know go play it on your own i, I encourage everybody to do that so any uh for you psycho anything else um this is really a game that should be on psn but oh um, yeah absolutely yeah we yeah we and there were um and we talked about again we talked about this on the first show it got an esrb rating but then they they dropped that what did they do they applied for one and then they removed it or something like that so there was hope and now it doesn't look so hopeful yeah. but yeah that should absolutely because it's so hard to find and everything else and it, it i i'm with you it should be on psn the thing is really early on in psn they threw up the first game and then they just kind of abandoned it and I think one of the problems is the community itself. I got to thinking about this the other day. And I remember when Suikoden 1 came out on PSN, and you go onto like all kinds of video game forums or message boards or like people's walls or whatever you were looking at. And if they were asking about PSN games, then they were like, how's Suikoden? Everyone would say, oh, Suikoden 1's a good game, but 2 is way better. So you'd have the community going in and saying, basically saying, hey, yeah, it's a pretty good game. But this other one is so much better that now you have the buyer thinking, why don't I just wait for the second one to come out? Okay. So instead of spending, like, what, six bucks on Suikoden 1, they're like, why don't I just wait for the second one if everyone says it's way better? So you, okay, you, 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 that's definitely an interesting theory. I never looked at it that way, but uh, you, I mean, you could be right for all I know. That's 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 a very interesting take on it. Yeah, that was a common reply that I saw on those types of messages uh, when it first came out. Nowadays, people don't really mention the second one as much because mm -hmm. I, I wonder if they've uh, realized that. They're like, man, we kind of sabotaged the sales of the first game, so let's not ever mention the second game until after they play the first game right well who knows things you know we never thought we would get earthbound um i know but they put they put that on the virtual console for wii u eventually so who knows anything can happen right i know konami has a twitch channel where they do streaming and i think it was like a week or two ago that they streamed some suikoden 2 so it got like some of the fan forums going crazy 
but I, oh, it, wow. it was too, I saw the message too late or else I would have jumped in and said, PSN, 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 PSN. I would have just copied and pasted it over and over and over again. <laughs> because otherwise, your only other options of playing this game involves dropping well over $100 online, getting extremely lucky by finding it in the wild, or do going down a route that's less than legal. Right. Yep. So we'll hope to see it on uh, PSN eventually. Uh, meanwhile, I mean, I would say it's worth the asking price right now. If there's a, if you're into RPGs, if you really like the first game, and there, and you're the kind of person who can save up and drop 120 to upwards of 150 dollars on a game, I'm gonna say go for it on this one. Uh, definitely would recommend it, even at the price. Um, so with that, I think we should wrap up the show. Uh, I am Grego81, uh, and with me, Sir Psycho, thank you so much for joining uh, the show again and lending your expertise of the Suicoden series to the podcast. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, I've also played a lot of other RPGs, so if you need some questions or have any have anything like that, shoot me a question pm it goes to listeners or anybody on the playthrough staff whatever cool man we appreciate it and uh we'll see you and we'll see everybody else on the forums at rfgeneration.com thanks In this month's discussion on eco, I'd just like to just send out a quick apology for the uh, quality of my microphone this month. Um, I was having a little bit of trouble with the mic and some of the settings, and didn't realize it until after we had finished the recording. So, um, really sorry about that. I uh, hope you can bear with my somewhat robotic voice this month, and hope you still enjoy the show. So, for the month of September on the modern side, we played a PlayStation 2 classic known as Eco. This was sort of a revisit to our June Modern Playthrough, in which we did Shadow of the Colossus, uh, kind of an homage to the same developers. Uh, we had such a fantastic turnaround for that game that, um, you know, we just decided to play the uh, the prequel. And uh, Jamie was our host for the month, so I'll let him talk about the game. Yeah, so this was a 2001 title uh, on PS2, and uh, also on uh, the uh, PS3 Eco and Shadow of the Colossus collection, uh, which was released in 2011. And um, this was brought to us by the same people who did Shadow of the Colossus. It's sort of a boy meets girl story uh, that has a bit of a twist. Uh, the boy is uh, banished to this castle, and uh, you're supposed to try and find a way out of the castle. Now, before we get into discussing the game, I'd just like to mention all the people who participated this month. We've got Bomba Tamba, Crabmaster2000, Engineer Mike, Fleech, uh, Grey Ghost 81, Silent Scythe, uh, Single Banana, and Tech Wizard, myself. And uh, yeah, so if uh, you guys uh, want to get started on the gameplay, um, what do you think about the controls in the game? I think that's a good place to start. Uh, I felt uh, myself that they were a bit clunky, but uh, I'd like to see what you guys thought about them. I think they were. I, they definitely I... felt... Sorry, they definitely felt like an early PS2 game, sort of almost like PS1-ish 
controls.、Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say they were bad, but I mean, because I do a lot of modern gaming, so that's what I kind of have to compare that to. And、um, yeah, it wasn't as good as what we now have in, in terms of game control, but it was definitely still very playable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And this game actually started out as a PS1 game.、Uh, mm-hmm. So there might be some remnants of、uh, little awkward controls going on. But I actually didn't feel like the controls were an issue.、Uh, Jamie, I'm sorry to hear that you had some troubles with that. But、uh, of, of all the things that I didn't exactly love about this game, I wasn't feeling、uh, the controls as being a problem.、Uh, yeah, they weren't a huge problem for me, but I just felt like they were、uh, less than perfect, basically. Uh, just、uh, a few times where I felt like they were making things more difficult than they could have been otherwise. Yeah, I agree with Jamie a little on this. I mean, I, I felt that, you know, compared to like Shadow of the Colossus, I felt the controls were a little、uh, tougher. It was a little tougher to move the camera around. And I guess that's what I'm, you know, just really used to in a PS2 game is to be able to,、um, you know, kind of use my、mm. sticks to、uh, move the camera around a bit. And for this game, it seemed like the natural motion was to just let it, let the camera do what it needed to do. And so it, it took me a little while to sort of get used to that, if that makes sense.、Mm-hmm. I, I found、um, I'm, I'm kind of like half agreeing with you guys.、Um, overall, I didn't have any trouble with the controls or, or the camera for that matter, but there would be moments in terms of just like level layout where I wouldn't realize that I was running into a corner and it would just sort of. Take away all my momentum from,、uh, from, from, my, from my running.、Mm, yeah. But then I just had to tell myself, you know, I'm playing an early PS2 game that, you know, we all later discovered was, you know, development started in the PS1 era. So you kind of, if you think about that, you can overlook that little minor、um, drawback. Right. And the trade off is that there's a lot of subtlety in the, the default camera that you, you'll get a lot of、uh, like really picturesque landscapes like as you're doing something,、mm-hmm. or you'll get hints where the, where the camera is looking at something that you should、mm-hmm. be looking at, and it kind of directs your eyes to a window that you could jump through or something. So there, there is a little bit of a wonkiness to the manual camera, but the default camera is really well done. So I think that's kind of a, a trade off that you have to make. Well, let me ask this question real quick before we go any further.、Um, did all of you guys play this on PS3 or PS2? PS2 for me. Okay, okay. I played I, it on、uh, PS3. Yes, I played the、uh, PS3 port、that、as well. This should be interesting because there's some differences that we're going to do. Yeah, that, that's interesting that Jamie and I had the same. Issue and then you guys didn't. You think maybe they might have brushed that up or maybe made some changes in that that might have made it a little stronger for the PS3? I mean, it's a possibility. I imagine that could have happened. Yeah.、Um, I haven't looked into it, but maybe it's something we could look into.、Uh, I, like, I don't know if this was、um, a PS3 edition that they made, but、uh, I believe it was pressing R2、uh, would zoom in the camera. Do you guys have that too?、Uh, yeah, I,、uh, I use that sometimes, but so rarely. Oh, okay. Yeah.、Um, anyway, I just wanted to add about the, like, the camera zoom in. Was that because、uh, I played it on、uh, the PS3 and my R2 trigger is really sensitive.、Oh, okay. So I would get like unintentional zoom ins, but it also kind of worked. It kind of gave me this like、um, omniscient perspective, kind of gave that vibe that、uh, Eco is always being watched. And it, it, 
even though it was just a flaw with my controller, it kind of actually was kind of neat. Mm. For myself, it wasn't so much uh, the the default camera versus uh, the jumpiness of the manual camera, which, uh, I mean, that was part of it, but uh, it was a lot of times I just uh, felt like it was kind of limiting. Uh, like, uh, I would try to do a puzzle and it's uh, like there's an obstacle in the way, uh, just like most PS1 and 64 era 3D games where uh, there's foreground objects that keep getting in your way. You're trying to look around them, but the camera's not really cooperating that well. Yeah, yeah, I ran into that too. And my, my biggest issue was, you know, when I would try to kind of traverse jumps, like do that sort of uh, backwards jump, you know, especially um, the part with the windmill. Mm, yeah. Um, that, that was one place that, that took me uh, quite a few uh, attempts for me to, you know, to be able to make that jump and, and to get that camera angle right because you're trying to. Um, sort of like traverse up the blades at the same time, you know, as they're coming around. Yeah, you need yeah. to line yourself up for that jump. Right, I found right. The, uh, the distance uh, to jump was really difficult to judge, like maybe something to do with the depth of field, but I found it just one of those spots where it's a little difficult to figure out uh, how far uh, or when to jump. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just so, just to jump in here, guys. Uh, the PS3 remaster. There's there's no. They didn't make any improvements to the actual camera and controls or anything like that. Really, okay. all they did was that you know they put the HD. Uh, you know they did the HD remaster and they basically shored up the frame rate and that's it. You know they they added 3D support if you have a 3D TV, but I don't think any of us experienced that. But no, yeah, but, we should have all had the same experience with the controls. So, but I, I know at least two rooms for sure were definitely um, changed. Uh, but that was more about the puzzle mechanics, not so much the uh, controls. Um, because uh, right. there's, my right. friend played through on the PS3 version, and there's one room. Uh, near the waterfall puzzle where he uh, was uh, trying to ask for help and he's like well this is piston thing that you have to move to get out of the room and you can't figure it out and I'm like what piston and I send him a screenshot of mine and there's just no piston there and mm -hmm. like the whole layout of the room is different yeah it's sort of like a pop-up though you have to like jump to a certain point or something like that I think that. so yeah yeah there was in that the in the original that just doesn't even exist mm -hmm. and then I think uh, someone mentioned above the waterfall water wheel. there's a water wheel there's a water wheel. Yeah, yeah, that's not in the PS2 version. No, that was uh, added yeah, to the those PS2 two things were changed. Well, I just want to add that uh, the PS3 version apparently is the European release of the game. Okay. So oh, okay. this water wheel level, I guess it's technically original content, but it just it didn't make it into the North American release and work. Hmm, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. North Americans just can't handle water wheels. <laughs> Just like we can't handle Super Mario Bros. 2. <laughs> exactly. I wanted to make one last note on the cameras that I felt it was so cinematic. Like, they really must have had uh, some, some film industry people in the, in the development process on this game. Because everything, like, every shot um, in this game was like a painting, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Especially when you're, like, traversing those towers mm -hmm. as well. Like, running along the towers, getting that... Uh, uh, landscape, there's landscape backdrops when you were outside. I mean, that was, you know, some of the shots are just breathtaking. I mean, just such a beautiful game. Yeah, just take some screenshots and frame those. And I'll reiterate, I mean, again, similar to Shadow Colossus, I mean, this has propelled me to get a PS3. I mean, I already have the game. It's the only PS3 game I own right now, and, and I just, I had to have it. You know, I just had to have it in my collection, even though I do not have that console yet. And, mm. uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm itching to play through these two games again, you know, as soon as I get that console. So 
says a lot. <laughs> yeah, it really does. And uh, I don't know if you guys uh, had much experience with this on the PS3 version, but on the PS2 one, I felt like the uh, kind of washed out uh, colors and, and the slight blurriness of everything, uh, even though it's an old graphic, uh, it just uh, added to the whole effect uh, that Floyd mentioned about uh, uh, the painting uh, look and style. And uh, I feel like that actually added to it more than took away from it. But yeah, I can, uh, I can imagine it. it looking really like misty and hazy would kind of make it look more yeah, exactly like magical and ethereal um mm -hmm. but you know having not it's played that version having not played that version i really like the crisp clean vibrant visuals of the uh ps3 hd port yeah i've got a copy of that myself so i'll have to try it someday all right so we'll just kind of move on here and um mm -hmm. talking about uh, kind of personal controls and uh one of those um Options was, uh, of course, you know, uh, your character, um, and you've got Yorda as well. And during the game, you're sort of having to coax her along and, you know, drag her around with you, which is a, a very interesting mechanic to the game. Escort mission the game. <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the things I really like about this game a lot is that there are certain things that you can do and there's certain things that only she can do, so I feel like that adds a really, just really awesome piece to the, the sort of the puzzle mechanics of the game because, you know, she can't crawl down chains, you can, she can't, you know, swing and, and do everything that you can do, so you have to almost think about it separately, right? You have to know what your limits are and know what her limits are as well hmm. and put those together, like, cohesively to sort of solve a puzzle. Yeah, definitely. You have to play off both of their strengths and weaknesses. I like yeah. when you uh, call her to do something she can't do, and she goes, uh-uh. <laughs> really? I, I never yeah. heard that. Or, um, maybe I just didn't pay attention to that. But, um, yeah, no, that's uh, that's something I'm sure we're going to touch on, but just those little subtleties in that game. Hmm. Yeah, but I, I, the first time I realized she couldn't climb a chain, it was like, oh, it's going to be that kind of game. But, <laughs> but yeah. Um, <laughs> But then I realized, like, that's not that's not the way I'm supposed to go. I'm not supposed to go up here and climb this chain. I, I was going in completely the wrong direction, and I discovered mm -hmm. that by realizing that she can't climb chains. So, mm -hmm. Did you yeah. guys notice what I uh, mentioned in the thread about sometimes she seems to give you hints by walking towards things that uh, you're not looking at? Yeah, I, I, I used that a couple times, actually. Uh, if you just wait around, uh, if the shadows don't come and try to pick her up, she'll... <laughs> <laughs> she'll yeah. she'll yeah, exactly. walk over, wander over, call you over. That was pretty cool you know, mm -hmm. and a good thing to know. Well, that's the kind of nutty thing about this game is that you know, there, there are moments when you have to leave her by herself and you are kind of freaking out. You're like, oh, well, you know, if you, if you go too far or step into a certain room and, and get too far away from her, then the shadows are definitely going to come up mm -hmm. and attack and you're too far away. To, to make it back to her and of course you know you get your your end game and you're always worried because you can't tell exactly <laughs> when they're going to show up i mean i've had sometimes where they show up as soon as you leave the room and then other times you can go like three or four rooms away and they just don't show up right. so it's always a bit of an element of surprise yeah you definitely have to think about your backtracking as you're as you're kind of moving yeah. about and, and determining how you can um you know get to her you know to respond and, and be quick enough before they drag her under mm -hmm. so i guess that's Sort of another thing we can talk about is, you know, sort of the enemies and, um, you know, how, how it is that you 
you know, kind of save her and, and kind of pull her out. Yeah, combat in general. Yeah, um, we should. I guess the larger question is what 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 kind of place the combat had in this game because a lot of people have problems with it. I kind of didn't love it, uh, but you know, points have been made uh, by certain people that you know it. it it, it helps your connection to Yorda by being able to protect her in that way. But I don't know. I felt that every, every time I was getting into a good groove with puzzles and, you know, not like kind of thinking, Oh, if I get, when I get over there, I can pull this lever or whatever. And then that, that ominous music starts, which is like the only music in the game. And it's really, <laughs> it's like, layers of annoyance just piling on <laughs> top of each other like i don't i like the game better without music i i don't like swinging my little two by four at these <laughs> you know hordes of enemies um but i'm sure we can touch on like some of the mechanics like you can't actually die they can they're only going to knock you over the the main point is to get yorda out of there if you yeah. can hmm. yeah. i found that the combat was good like once or twice, and then it just became tedious. Like and it was way too much the same thing over and over again. And right. I think if they had changed it up a little bit more, then it might have uh, been better. Did you guys get to the point where is when when you realize that Yorda opening the the, the gates will kill everything? Yeah. Did you just avoid combat pretty much? Like uh, any time they came out, I said, "Okay, where's the door?" and just started <laughs> running her towards where I thought it would be. Yeah, exactly. Just to avoid combat at all yeah. costs. Yeah, if I, if I could do I that, could. I would. Um, but in the in the events that um, I would have to either leave Yorda to you know move a block in place so that I could make a jump, and then um, I would you know defend off, or fend off all the enemies, just clear that room before moving on. Um, like, and even though combat was totally avoidable, I, I found it, uh, easy to, you know, dispense with all the enemies before moving on. Yeah, I felt the same way through most of the rooms. Uh, there was a couple, uh, or at least one room for sure, that you had to just run to the door, um, in this big open courtyard room. Uh, but otherwise, for the most part, you could always kill off the enemies and eventually... Uh, move on that way. Yeah, I, I think the major complaint is that the combat was tedious because it was really drawn out. Like you'd have wave mm. after wave of enemies, and that um, take like five or six hits for each one of them. Yeah, and you'd have you know four or five at a time. So do the math. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it got better once you improved your weapon. Yeah, once you picked up the sword. You know, once you got to that point, it, it got a lot better. And if anyone found the uh, the secret uh, the club. Um, which we'll we'll probably talk about later. Um, that that weapon was really awesome. I think it was like a kind of a two hit weapon as well. So it, it made the combat a lot smoother, made it a lot easier. But um, I kind of agree. It was it, it the combat felt a bit unnecessary in this game. It wasn't over. I never felt that it was overbearing in the game. It wasn't like you were doing it every room or in every puzzle sequence. Um, but at the same time, I, I felt that like all the combat seemed to be very generic and seemed to be the same. There wasn't mm -hmm. a, a like a plethora of enemies. Um, there weren't any. I think this game could have done well to have maybe a few like sub boss battles or something like that. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, but um, I, I never found it tedious or annoying. Um, just 
just kind of something that you know that I had to do, you know, to complete the game. Yeah, I guess. yeah, kind of just time consuming and mm-hmm. something that ultimately I'm sure none of us minded doing, but probably would have rather have not had to have gone through. Yeah. But um, no, I, I, just, I just wanted to say about the combat, it really punctuated the quiet puzzle moments. It, mm. And it kind of, um, it brought a good balance to, you know, the peaceful downtime uh, that would, you know, which is the majority of the game. And it gave you the sense that, I mean, yes, you're escaping, but it's not going to be an easy, um, you know, an, an, an easy path, and not only because the environment is literally trying to prevent you from not escaping, but uh, you know we have these uh, shadow monsters. Mm-hmm. This is... I feel like the game was trying to imply uh, just how, how weak you and Yorda were compared to everything that you're trying to fight off, and I think that it would have uh, benefited from avoiding combat entirely and just have the enemies uh, so overpowered that you're forced to run away every time, and turn the battles into a puzzle of their own maybe like uh, where you have to find a way to escape the room before you uh, get killed like that that, like that could be like um a new game plus type difficulty setting if, if if you want my opinion um but i i really did think it it added some weight to you know the whole objective of getting out of this fortress with yorda um, yeah, I think uh, I, I do agree, but I think that uh, they could have just done a little less of it, maybe. <laughs> like, uh, done something along the lines of what I suggested for most of the fights, and then have these sort of boss fights, like Rich was saying, uh, where uh, you're forced to fight these things, and you have yeah. to find some way to defeat them. Yeah, the action was more to, and the combat was more to propagate the story than it was to necessarily have mm-hmm. battles, like within mm-hmm. the game. Yeah, it's just like, okay, here's a reminder, bad things are coming after you. Yeah, right? it, it wasn't, I mean, yeah. Um, it, it wasn't you know, used in the same way that a typical action-adventure game would use battles, which just to sort of, you know, give you that, you know, feeling of, you know, power and success and all that. I, I, I think it was used to just evoke an emotion that uh, you're not meant to leave here. You're really you know, defying um, the expectations of your captors. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the game a little bit as far as, as we mentioned, this is sort of an action-adventure game, of course. There's some combat in it. But um, it's also, for the most part, is a puzzle game. Um, you know, puzzle mechanics, um, you know, are throughout this game. Every room is a puzzle game. If, you, if you're the kind of person that um, really dislikes puzzle games, I'm looking your way, Sean. Then um, you yeah. may not like this game and may become frustrated with it. I, I, I do know that, that Sean sort of changed his tune about this game, but um, if you if you're a member and you have uh, read the forums, you know that there were some um, there was a few a few rage quits and uh, such as Sean was playing the game. So I'll, I'll let him kind of attack this a little bit. All right, sure. And you know, it's kind of funny. It's 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 this game has so many parallels to the Wind Waker playthrough from my perspective because okay. of the environmental puzzles. And just the same way when we were playing the Wind Waker, I was posting in the forums every day how much the game was giving me fits. But at the end of the day, I was really glad that I played it. You know what I mean? And I feel the same way with Eco. Mm-hmm. And I must say that I you know, I consider myself like a PS2 
Fnatic, you know, that's by far my favorite console. It's my favorite part of my collection. It's my biggest part. Of, it's the biggest part of my collection. And I've played Shadow of the Colossus. The reason I've never played Eco is because I've heard that it's frustrating. And that kept me from playing it for all these years. So I'm really grateful that we had the playthrough of this game because it just made me say, well, the hell with it. I'll give it a try. Mm. So having said that, it's not nearly as frustrating as I had it built up in my mind, both from the combat perspective and also from the puzzle perspective. I think it helps that it's a pretty short game too. It's not uh, more than maybe five hours at most. Agreed. Yeah, you Agreed. can totally, yeah. you know, plow through it in one sitting if you really wanted to. Right. Absolutely. I think I called it a. Uh, this is the perfect like rainy Saturday game. Oh yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you know, just sit through it and play it. It's great. So having said all that, um, I am not. It's it's not like puzzle games that I don't like. It's environmental puzzles and the more abstract puzzles because. My, I don't, I don't usually make the connection in my brain in a game where I can't hold a two by four in one hand and the sword in the other hand yeah, to then know <laughs> that I have to, you know, whatever you got to do, throw a bomb here, or, you know, uh, climb this rope or swing on it or whatever. Like games where you're supposed to use real world logic and only some of the time, you know, when the game wants you to kind of thing. That's mm. that's where I'm, I'm like my skills kind of break down. So, I, you know, I, I relied on a guide a lot, a walkthrough. But still, there were I had streaks, especially towards the end of the game. From, from actually from the front gate towards the end of the game, I didn't touch a walkthrough. Which isn't saying much because that's the easiest part of the game. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like... And the, the, the parts where I rage quit, it wasn't because I couldn't figure out a puzzle. It was because I was miscalculating a jump like over and over. And it was really far away from a save point, And I was really getting upset about that. That's so, kind of uh, the issues I had with the camera sometimes, and, like not lining up. And then I'd uh, misjudge the distance and right. fall off a cliff or something. Right. And, and for the most part, the save points are pretty well spaced apart. But... I think they're far enough apart that it at times discourages you from experimenting hmm. and making any kind of like leaps of faith. If you're not sure you can make a jump, you will be reluctant to do it because if you die, you'll go back, you know, 10 minutes or whatever it is that you'll have to do a bunch of stuff again. So I feel that was a big detriment to the game. But like I said, as frustrating as I thought it was going to be, it, it it really wasn't, and I'm glad I played it with you guys. So yeah, I, I think the save point thing is a trade off because uh, on your first playthrough, uh, the save points can be as much as half an hour apart at least. But then once you've uh, done the puzzles once and you go through again, it can uh, be as much as maybe five minutes apart for the same uh, save points. Right, and and the funny thing is, you don't think about it a lot, but there are checkpoints. Sometimes you'll die and you'll go back to the love seat, but sometimes you'll die and there's a checkpoint. That's so true, even, yeah. even the save points, if they're spaced far apart, you might get lucky and you'll have a checkpoint in there if you fall off a cliff or something. Well, you I will, sure you will respawn you at uh, the last idle door you opened or the last mm -hmm. save point you used, whichever is closer. Okay, so that that must be it then. Yeah. I didn't realize that it was the the doors that did it. Yeah, but I knew I there was the some kind of checkpoint. Yeah, the doors and major story points, like after some of the uh, the uh, 
uh, cutscenes, I think some of them uh, were considered uh, itself as a checkpoint. Mm -hmm. But okay. yeah, for the most part, doors and, and save points were the major things. So um, on some of the specific rooms, I had a couple favorites here uh, and uh, some not so favorite rooms. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, one of my favorite rooms was the uh, one with the broken center walkway and like the chandelier that you have to make fall down, blowing up the pillar and all that. Okay. Uh, it was frustrating at first, but uh, I just really liked the room, uh, the mechanics of it, and figuring out all the different multiple puzzles. And that was the first room where you had to use fire, actually, because you had to use the two by four on the chandelier. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't figure that one out. I had to yeah. get that from a guide. I didn't. Yeah, know not what on to the do. chandelier, but on the uh, bombs, uh, you needed it. Yeah, right. that one of the, the more frustrating things in the game, just to, as a side note for me, was um, lighting the two by fours, and um, you know, like if there was a like a like a torch on the wall or something you're supposed to light sometimes i, I couldn't get it to sort of like interact and, and light it like each mm -hmm. time and i get a little frustrated with that I, I thought that could have been done a little bit better it seemed like you had to be like standing in a certain spot mm. uh, but 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 i did like that room as well i thought that was really cool mm -hmm. i think that's related to uh, the bad pathing uh, that the game had sometimes with uh like, uh, Yorda sometimes would need to be in a very, very specific spot before she would actually jump up to catch your hand. And uh, like you said, sometimes you have to be in a very specific little X to light a torch or uh, whatever. And it just seems to be very picky with things like that. Yeah. Even even saving, like near the benches sometimes. Yeah, it was, yeah that too. You know, just, just getting her to, like, interact <laughs> and to just sit down. Just, like, just sit down so I can save this game. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like when you sit down, she's kind of on your right side and trying to move to your left, and it's like she hits your knees and kind of does a little circle around your legs and then walks to the other side and misses the couch and comes back. And... Yeah. I mean, I never encountered anything like that, but I, I thought it was um, really quaint and quite adorable that you can, you know, run eco over to, uh, you know, the, the save sofa, and uh, you had to call Yorda over. To uh, mm. and you both had to sort of sit down together to save it. Kind of, it made Yorda seem more more human and just like less of a like a video game avatar, and like yeah. it it helped me sort of stop thinking that I'm playing a game and that I'm I'm really experiencing something. I agree for the most part. It's just there's the odd time where she seemed to be kind of walking in circles back and forth in the same spot and. Uh, like yeah. trying to find your hand to jump up to a ledge and it's right in front of her, but she keeps walking past it. I had some real, I, I thought that the, you know, as good as Yorda's AI was, I, there were some real like immersion breaking situations with her. Like that long ladder after the, um, the, the second tower that you open the door with, mm -hmm. I climbed up it and climbed back down and for no reason she started climbing up it oh, no. and, and and went all the way up and i was like <laughs> really? what the hell are you doing going up there so <laughs> i i i'm just sitting there like and i had to wait for her to climb all the way up and i'm yeah, like get the hell back down here i think once she starts climbing she doesn't stop <laughs> yeah yeah I, I think that's that's what people generally complain about is that yorda's really slow especially mm. on the ladders her little one-handed step up, like she doesn't kind of go back and forth hand to hand. She goes like one hand up, and then the next one, and then like it's yeah, kind yeah, of exactly. going up sideways almost. <laughs> but I mean, I, I there were times where I thought like, okay, this is now I just have to wait for you to climb up this ladder, or you have to climb down this ladder, and it's going to take forever. But 
I didn't really mind. No. It makes it sort of more in, endearing, too. It makes you feel like you're sort of the protector. It makes her, I guess, feel or seem a little more feeble than your character and, and less adventurous. And so, See, you got kids, so you can, you can kind of <laughs> identify with it. I'm serious, right? Is that, don't you think that you could probably identify with Eco a little bit better in that perspective? Like, for me, I don't have... I'm like, you know... Come on, you stupid idiot! Take my hand. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're what, probably what you getting mean on you something. Can't there? Climb a chain. Maybe it's just a reflection of of us as people. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. I mean, I think I do like have probably a little more patience than what I used to have, you know. And so maybe that's kind of um, yeah, you know, reflecting in my gaming. So I mean, that's that's a good point. I just wanted to say that. You know, I, I'm I'm single and kids are, you know, in the, you know, future for me. But um, having Yor to do the, you know, one foot, one hand ladder climb, it just made me think that, like, okay, she's not, like, a nimble young person. Like, she's just been trapped up in this um, fortress for the majority of her life compared to Iko, who's, you know... Um, in in terms of relatively has uh, has had a you know a life of luxury where he can you know go run and jump and play and do all this kind of like kid boy stuff right mm-hmm. yeah i think the most important thing you said right there was uh, just to denote it floyd single so all of you <laughs> ladies out there listening to this podcast mm-hmm. all two of you yeah he won't mind yeah. if you take a really long time climbing the ladder yeah i i'm fine with slow ladder <laughs> true climbing. gentleman um, I climb. will catch yeah. you when you try to jump across a ledge. He'll pull you out of bottomless pits. Yeah. And I have plenty of 2x4s to swat at shadows. And if you're interested, please PM me. There you go. At rfgeneration.com. That's right. No, no, I don't have any of those, but uh, I am on Facebook and my Twitter is at Fleet. All right. <laughs> oh. so, anyway, favorite rooms. <laughs> Did you guys have any rooms that were specific areas that you thought were really great? Yeah, I'll jump in here if I may. I, I, I thought the the second tower was great because it's it's not an exact flip like an exact mirror flip of the first tower but the a lot of the same elements are there can i just interrupt you for a second by 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 tower you mean the uh the rooms where you'd have to um use those reflector things to focus the light right yes i'm sorry if i'm not being clear here the the two rooms that open each side of the main gate. Oh, okay. Right. The ones you access right. yeah, by yeah, walking right. along the way right. walls. In the first room, you get the sword, and in the second one, uh, you get it, nothing. It's you get nothing. But again, <laughs> so that that room was kind of my favorite because that's where I felt confident for the first time in the game because I I thought, oh, I did this before, and I actually did. I think there are two ways that you can do it because you can climb up the water the water room and then turn the water off but i actually somehow circumvented that and turned the water off first so i was actually kind of like patting myself on the back like i felt like i had figured something out so i felt like the game kind of built up confidence for you by the time you got there and plus 
realizing like, okay, I'm going to open the other side of this gate. I can see a light at the end of the tunnel. That is this game. Like we're going to go and get through that main gate. It's going to be so cool, you know? Mm-hmm. So I really like, that was my favorite like segment of the game. Yeah, Mine would probably be the, um, I really like the windmill. I mean, I just thought that was beautiful and just a, just a great, just really integration of that device in a game. I mean, it's just it's beautiful. It was it was iconic, and you know, from um, I think it was the the alternate cover that's inside of the uh, the PS3 version. They they sort of note that windmill. That's kind of a big uh, backdrop on the game. And I just yeah. I just really like that room. That was just, that was drawn by. That was drawn by Fumito Ueda himself, the director of the game. He oh, drew wow. that okay. original cover. I mean, we all agree that the North American art was pretty lousy. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd have to go with Fleet here. It's uh, definitely not as good as the uh, European or Japanese one. Yeah, the, the European slash Japanese artwork really captured everything this game is about. It You know, it's, you know, two people trying to escape you know against the odds and and gives you that sense of of you know size that um and it was um inspired by a spanish surrealist painter named uh giorgio de de chirico um and he does the same sort of like archways and like angular shadows and light off in the distance you know i i think um Eco really drew me in uh, through its artwork that we never got to see in North America. I mean, I loved it so yeah. much that, um, you know, thanks to uh, to a link that Rich uh, sent to me, I, I bought the uh, the poster and it's, it's now <laughs> hanging up in my game room. I think it's, you know, not only is it like beautiful as a piece of art, it's, it's beautiful as a reflection of what this game is about. And I yeah, think there was yeah. a lot of good t-shirts in that link too, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. yeah check out that really thread cool. if you haven't. Uh, there, there's some just great stuff. Yeah, definitely going to be getting some of those shirts for Christmas. And <laughs> something that uh, Floyd mentioned to me too that I wanted to point out, if you do own the PS3 version, make sure that you take your insert out and flip it around, and you can actually have that artwork. They did it uh, sort of a reversible cover, um, yep. and you can actually, did you you can actually have that really cover? nice artwork. Rich, did you? Yeah, yeah. And you have the reversible yep. cover. Yes, I do. And oh. it's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's got uh, Shadow of the Colossus on one side and uh, Eco on the other side. Because it's, it's, it's really it's, nice. Yeah, the, the, the Japanese artwork for both games is just phenomenal. Um, yeah. On, on my, it looks uh, better on your shelf. <laughs> yeah. On, on my um, compilation disc, I just I have the um, generic uh, cover and then just the backside is white. Oh. Uh-huh. Maybe that's the Canadian exclusive kind of thing, because sometimes we get different prints. Yes, we do. Unfortunately. <laughs> wow. Yeah, my favorite rooms, because um, I had two, were, I guess I could sort of put these two as one, were the two uh, reflector rooms. So I enjoyed the puzzle um, that they, they presented, and it was really, I don't know how to put it, it was really, like, connected. You know, you could go down this one path within the room, and that would take you to that waterfall-type area. Or you go down that other path, which would eventually lead you outside, where you had to um, uh, move the light reflector to, to channel the, the light energy. And then just 
just for the pure visual aesthetic beauty of it, I really like the outdoor segment with the uh, with the windmill. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, that was one of the beautiful things about this game. I feel like when you when you open the first door or you activated the first side of the door, you knew automatically. Okay, I'm gonna have to activate that other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you knew that it was gonna be in a similar fashion, and just you know how symmetrical that portion of the game was. You know, and, and you knew you're gonna have to do that. To me, it was just was really cool. I mean, someone might say, "Well, you know, maybe that's a little bit redundant." I, I didn't feel that way at all. I mean, I felt I, like I there agree. were yeah. two separate puzzles. It was beautiful. You, you knew what you had to do, and it, it's one of those things that I really liked about this game was how the game really folds like sort of back on itself. Yeah, it, it's a very you, symmetrical experience. Yeah, and, and you have to like traverse areas again, but it's so well designed that you don't have to backtrack that far. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you, you'll have to go through another room again, and maybe, you know, you've opened something up, but it, it's so well designed that nothing feels forced in the entire game. I mean, I just, to me, that that's simply amazing that they could just put that together, you know, in this, you know, into a, a larger scale puzzle. Yeah, just, I, you know, I, I, I really like that too, and um, I think this is um, a bit of a testament of the PS2's uh, processing power. Was that the whole uh, fortress um, is one complete thing? Like the architecture and layout of it makes sense, right? And um, yeah, it's the, all one environment. Yeah, it's, it's all, all one big huge environment, and th- there's very minimal loading screens. Mm-hmm. Just like Shadow of the Colossus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and while we're talking about the design of this game, I, I just had it in my head that I wanted to mention that when we did the podcast for the last of us i was complaining and a few of us were about just the the flaws of modern game design and i was thinking like well this you know the last of us has a great story it's very cinematic but then you got to run around and shoot people in the face and it's just one of those kind of games when you boil it down and Mm -hmm. in a way like eco is the game i was asking for you know what i mean like as i was playing eco it's like this is what i wanted this is some kind of minimalist, uh, you know, there's no HUD on the screen. There's no tutorials. It's all, you know, you're going by intuition. Mm-hmm. You have to figure things out for yourself. At times the game is relaxing. You know, there's a there's so many like stop and look around and, you know, I call them smell the roses moments when, exactly, when yeah. they happen in games. So it's like I had this like kind of conflicted feeling uh, even at times when I wasn't loving the game, that's like, oh wait, yeah, this is this is the game that I wanted, you know, and it's the game that I long for every time I'm playing a a shooty shoot game, mm-hmm. as we you know call them around these parts. So, yeah, it should be no surprise that this game is a is an industry darling and has uh, inspired a lot of um, people to get into game design and and whatnot. And has yeah. um, inspired and influenced the design of many um, current games. I was thinking uh, Brothers: A Tale of Two Sons a lot while I was playing Eco. Mm-hmm. Actually, Brothers has no combat in it, so if you want Eco without the combat, although the puzzles are way, way, way easier in Brothers, but yeah. I could see the influence. Uh, I don't actually know that game. I'll have to look into it. Yeah. Oh yeah, great little game. Yeah, and a game we've already played in the playthroughs. Um, on the modern side on the Wii, um, Lost in Shadow. I mean, obviously borrowed from this game. I mean, it's 
you know, it, it's it's obvious. There's so many parallels in the two, and uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned this on the forums. I won't go into it right now to any uh, explicit detail, but uh, you know, I will say um, just to kind of get back to this whole minimalist design um, and approach to this game, there there weren't a whole lot of cutscenes to this game. The the ones there were were completely, I mean, just stunning, just beautiful cutscenes. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, that that sort of added to the minimalism of the game, you know, it was just sort of direct puzzle, uh, uh, platforming, and just, you know, just just not a lot of story. Uh, but that yeah. but that was nice in a way. Um, yeah, really I'd say you could probably count the number of uh, cutscenes on one hand, maybe two at most. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely less than ten. Th this game definitely wants to absorb your attention, and then it really doesn't let go into the very end. Mm -hmm. And and I, I think having cutscenes almost in sort of that like Naughty Dog style where it's like complete this room get a cutscene complete that room get a cutscene it would have really diminished the overall experience hmm. yeah I agree so what would you guys think about the comparisons with like Shadow of the Colossus with some of the game elements like just with the um, the camera controls and like the gameplay it's all very similar to Shadow of the Colossus uh, it's this is something you think that uh, future games from this company will be using the same thing? Future games. Maybe, hopefully. Well, uh, first of all, it's future game, and that's wishful yeah. thinking. <laughs> right. I was just—I'll just throw in real quick. I was just happy that uh, again, I having played Shadow of the Colossus and having shied away from Eco, I'm really glad that playing Eco wasn't just a huge step backwards because sometimes that happens when, mm -hmm. obviously, if you're this isn't a direct sequel, but it's the next game that Team Eco produced, so you're naturally inclined to think, well, Eco came before it; it must be a step backwards, but. At least from my perspective, it wasn't, you know, it was just as playable as Shadow of the Colossus was, you know, from my perspective. So I was very, you know, happily surprised about that. And the, 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 um, the, similar, the biggest similarity that carried over for both games to me was just the grand scale of the environments. And I think mm -hmm. I said in the forum that nobody does scale, even to this day, nobody can do scale like Team, Team Eco did. So yeah, they definitely work best in big. Yeah, mm -hmm. so that's definitely one thing that was within both games. That it's the best part of both games, in my opinion. As as good as a gameplay can be, whatever pros and cons you have with it, that that's what makes a team eco game in my heart and mind is that scope, that breathtaking. Like, how did they how did they get this kind of perspective mm -hmm. on the screen? Like, it's it's unbelievable. I completely agree. I mean, um, you know. The, the problem for me in, in playing this game, and, I, and I, I'm sure for a lot of people, was we had played something so awesome and fantastic as Shadow of the Colossus in June, and it was like, there's nothing that could match this. Oh, it's made by the same company? Well, I, I still don't think it's going to match up. And you, you can't separate the two after, after you've already played Shadow of the Colossus. And that was really hard for me. But, you know, I, I managed to do it and play through it and try not to think as too much about Shadow of the Colossus as I was playing it. And, you know, on the face, they're two completely different games. You've got, you know, Shadow of the Colossus is a game with, it's mainly action-adventure, mm -hmm. but it has small amount of puzzle elements that you have to figure out. Um, while Ico, uh, Ico, is, <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was going to do that, uh, 
Eco is completely the opposite. It's heavy puzzle, light action, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so just just the diversity between the two games. I, I don't even look at them as the same game. The, the only thing to me that is similar between both games is just the, the, the sort of the minimalist approach and the beauty of the games. And it, as you were saying, you know, you've, and I think I mentioned on the forums, Shadow of the Colossus has this very just huge and vast world that you have to traverse, whereas Eco is a more contained world but even though it's so contained, it feels so huge and so vast mm. as you're playing it. Yeah, you're right. I, I was I was going to say that too. Um, I think because I played Shadow first, um, I can see a lot of the things that they did in Eco that sort of were either perfected in in Shadow of the Colossus or things that carried over. Most notably, it was just like the scale of things and just like the cinematic nature of everything. But uh, definitely, Eco, they wanted to focus on the emotion and, and the story. And in, Sh- in uh, Shadow of the Colossus, they, it was basically, you know, let's make a game that's all boss battles and with, you know, peaceful moments in between. I, I think when you talk about a game, you're going to always remember the boss battles. And that's probably the first thing you're going to talk about. So that's probably what inspired Team Eco to, to make Shadow. Um, mm-hmm. whereas with Eco, they wanted to make something that's more, more peaceful, perhaps more reflective and, and just more, more sentimental really at the end of the day. Either that or maybe they're uh, realizing, oh, hey, we forgot boss battles in Eco. Let's just make a whole game. <laughs> <with> <laughs> <Miles."> <laughs> no, I, I completely agree. Um, with, with that assessment as far as, you know, wanting to make something a lot more reflective, um, you know, in that sense. Because there weren't many ways that you could die in this game. You know, I mean, you, you could not be, you couldn't be taken out by enemies. The only ways were, um, you know, if you if you fail, you know, from a certain distance or height, mm-hmm. uh, or if uh, Yorda was taken away from you. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, the main part of this game was just figuring out the puzzles, and they, you know, just really wanted to keep the story going. It wasn't about your, your character dying in this game, or, you know, or, or dying often. It was about making you try new things and, and push forward and filling and uh, completing this story, you know, this, this narrative. Right, yeah, mm-hmm. it kind of, um, it's an interesting little experiment in, all, in the way um, we perceive narratives as well. Like, if we look back on Eco as a story, those moments where we miss the jumps don't really exist, right? And that's true. The moments where Yorda was, um, you know, sucked down into those black voids, you can just sort of um, fill in the blanks and just say, well, Eco went back to that, uh, you know, casket room, um, retrieved Yorda, and they just backtracked to where they were at the last save point. And then the story continues. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a good uh, spot uh, as we're bringing up a lot of story things to uh, move on to the overall story of the game. Um, mostly we've been talking about gameplay here in some specific areas. So at the start of the game, uh, you've got this uh, village of people, very similar to the villagers of Shadow of the Colossus, mm-hmm. where 
they uh, whenever they find a boy who's been born with horns, uh, which is what Eco is, and then uh, they'll banish them to this castle. And uh, so uh, you're carried at the start of the game to the castle, you're locked up uh, alive for some reason inside of this coffin, and just left there to starve to death, I suppose. And uh, uh, from there, uh, that's where the story starts, basically. I think the backstory, or perhaps post-story, is that every um, body that's within those caskets in that main chamber are previous um, horned boys that have been yeah. taken to the temple. Because as you'll see in the, in the final battle, or, you know, sort of battle leading up to the final battle, is that you're, you're fighting these ghost shadowy figures of horned boys. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it seems like there's some sort of deal made with the village or the shamans and uh, the queen that, you know, you bring me your horned boys and they will, you know, guard my temple and I, you know, you'll be removing a, a bad omen from, uh, from, from your uh, community. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's an old world feel. I mean, this game has a very old world kind of feel, um, you know, as far as magic, um, you know, as far as, uh, you know, bad omens and things like that, stuff you would see in sort of like Greek tragedy. Yeah, um, yeah, that's why and, I felt like it, it was like a fairy tale almost. Mm -hmm. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I had a real tough time sort of placing this game, and, and that's what, you know, something I'd probably want to talk about a little bit later. Uh, maybe not right now, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I, I felt like, I, I couldn't place the game as far as, you know, you're on a castle, people are still riding horses and things like that, but as you're going through the castle, you see, like, piping, like, and, and things like that, more modern things like, um, you know, like metal pipes and things like that, so it's it's really it hard to kind industrial of... Industrial feel. Yeah, it yes, was kind of, uh, like, industrial slash steampunk meets, you know you know, the ages of, of, you know, typical fantasy. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And so my, my perspective, it was like, um, was this sort of like an apocalyptic story? Was there a certain group of people that lived in this area to begin with, and then they died out, and it's going back to sort of a primitive culture? Um, you know, or, or kind of what's happened here? But it, it seems um, it, it's um, kind of an, it's an odd world, you know, and mix. It, it feels very old world sort of mixed with new world. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. About the game. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's uh, very uh, confusing about uh, where or when it's supposed to be taking place. And it's hard to tell if it's actually Earth or if it's some other world. Yeah, and um, I, I think like even though I'm sure Ueda is open to these um, theories and, and ideas, it's not totally necessary to to think about you know who are these people or when is this taking place to to have an appreciation for this game this game just mm -hmm. it is right yeah it's trying to tell a basic uh, uh sort of love story through uh, an extraordinary world yeah it's it's you know to to try to put um you know a date or a setting on this story would really detract from its just ability to transcend language and transcend time you know i think yeah. suppose a third world person was able to grasp that you know i'm pressing a button on the controller and it's making something happen on a tv and this 
TV is not going to like capture my soul. But um, let's say you could explain what a game system is and what a TV is. They could relate and um, get some sort of experience out of eco. Well, that's what yeah. we love, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the it's the whole fascination. It's um, you know something that's um, that's universal. real. Yeah, it's universal. It's real on the surface, but you know, is, is otherworldly in certain aspects. I mean, you know, it's it's the same reason people love Star Wars, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's a galaxy far, far away, but at the same <laughs> it's, time, it's, it's got its you know, parallels it's still, to, to yeah, yeah, uh, to modern life and to um, you know, to still still sort of the boy meets girl story. Mm -hmm. Just, mm -hmm. you know, you just have to hope it's not your sister. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's, that's for another podcast, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's got a bit of a, like the Minotaur uh, thing. Uh, we mentioned some Greek tragedies earlier, and uh, it does have a bit of connections with like the uh, Minotaur in the labyrinth. and mm, uh, Icarus, so, right? Uh, Theseus. Um, yeah, I think it was a Theseus mm -hmm. and uh, okay. like King Minos. Right. Yes. Uh, and um, sending uh, the children to be sacrificed to the Minotaur. It's very similar to that. Um, uh, and uh, then the Horned Boy uh, connection to Shadow of the Colossus uh, with the ending of that, and the horns growing out of uh, the character there. Mm -hmm. uh, sort of a lot of connections to different stories here. What do you guys think of uh, like the dream sequence sort of at the start of the uh, story there? Uh, early on, it's, uh, showing Yorda as a shadow creature, and um, sort of, in my mind, it was implying that something bad was going to happen because of freeing her, but in the end, it didn't seem like that was the case. I don't know yeah. if you guys uh, thought something about that. I'm still a little perplexed by that, um, by that portion where you get kind of pulled through the wall, and you just you just kind of wake up on the floor. You yeah, know, that's. Now, that was an odd scene to me, and it, it made me feel, okay, is what I'm doing right now, is that the reality of the situation, what I'm doing, or have I been pulled into a dream now? Is this what I'm doing, just enacting a dream? You know, and not knowing the story, having never played the game before, that, you know, that sort of crossed my mind. Yeah, those first impressions. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite um, fascinated that you guys would think that that was Yorda pulling Eco through the floor in that uh, dream sequence because uh, I, I picked up that it was you know just his it was a vision of Eco's um, but the way I perceived it was more of just uh, providing context of what th is expected of the player and what Eco has to do and it was just sort of outlining your ne next objective without words. Yeah, I can see that. Um, so I, I just want to know why you guys think that was um, Yorda pulling uh, Eco through the floor. Well, I thought uh, it uh, to me it looked a lot like her because um, when you first see her uh, trapped in that cage at the top of that long staircase there, uh, she is a shadow creature just like that, and at the end of the game as well. Mm -hmm. I might have to go back and, and watch that again because I um, I just thought that was you know just a shadowy figure you know similar to um colossus but uh no i i, I never made that connection in my mind that that could be yorda yeah i, I didn't make that connection either um maybe i'll have to rewatch it then yeah <laughs> like i, I just, going by memory so i, I, I just thought it was a shadowy figure but I, I wasn't you know having never played the game before getting pulled through the wall i wasn't looking for a young girl either you mm -hmm. know you know what i mean because that was before um you know meeting her interacting with her yeah 
I knew that there was the girl and the boy uh, storyline going there, so I, I sort of thought uh, that it looked like a young girl uh, in my mind, but uh, like I said, maybe I'm mistaking it um, in my memory and have to give it another listen or a look. <laughs> maybe. Because <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure we'll touch on um, that shadowy figure of Yorda that rescues Eco at the end of the game. Mm -hmm. But no, I, I think that that whole vision sequence was just um, a totally... Uh, visual way of outlining what this game is about, what you're going to have to do, and your very next objective is this. Like, mm, all without like words. A tutorial? Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, uh, that does make sense when you explain it that way. Mm -hmm. A little farther on, because uh, there's not really too much story happening in between, but what did you guys think about uh, the queen that you meet uh, when you first come to the gate, who turns out to be Yorda's mom? Like, I have in my notes here that uh, Yorda's mom is a creepy jerk. <laughs> she uh, seemed to have little care for uh, Yorda. Well, I mean, we, we have no backstory of the relationship between the queen and Yorda, but uh, we do learn later on that uh, the queen does need uh, to sacrifice Yorda in order to um, sustain her life and, and perhaps her grasp of, uh, you know, evil within uh, mm -hmm. within the world. Um, well, I know in the cutscene when you first meet the queen there, uh, she definitely says, uh, oh, what are you doing with my daughter, or something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, we do know that they're related, but we don't know um, the history, the history of their relationship. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah, thank you. You know, it's it's just, obviously, Yorda does not want to be there, and um, the, the, the queen uh, is doing anything that she possibly can to prevent Eko from... Uh, from remo um, from taking Yorda out of the castle. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like that your escape um, in any way is causing her to have to take the life of her daughter now? Because it seems as though okay, why why now? Uh, why, you know, it's it's sort of like you know why am I being put in this position right now to um, you know have to 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 use my daughter to do this? You know and, and it yeah, well, seems like thinking like it's, it's Eko's fault uh, for yeah maybe the I mean for for escaping and for not passing along his I guess his essence that you know obviously she's feeding off the essence of all these uh, horned mm. kids as well so you're wondering if, if maybe and, and I kind of got the feeling like that I was sort of maybe a part of the cause of this well that that's kind of the theme of uh, Shadow of the Colossus too I mean do you feel like maybe you're mm -hmm. influenced by that game a little and that those kind of themes uh or subconsciously playing on you i mean i think you're on to something for sure and it very well could be yeah. you know something that the the developers uh have you know went back to for shadow of the colossus but it, it never dawned on me that uh, like now she has to be sacrificed because we tried to take her out you know like I yeah guess. no it's never implicitly stated Right, I, right. Actually, now that I think about it, I had uh, one note here where I was uh, thinking that um, uh, the Queen's weakening, her dying, and the connection with the destruction at the end of the game for the whole castle after she's dead, maybe um, as she's been weakening, uh, the castle's been deteriorating, because as you go through the game, there's ruins everywhere, and uh, the castle's kind of crumbling, and it feels like uh, that, uh, that's that been going on for a long time. Mm. And so along that line of thought uh, she's already been weakening for a long time uh, the connection with her in the castle has been weakening 
And so it seems less likely that it was actually Ico's fault. Well, if this is stuff that's been yeah, for a which while. could explain why the queen needs Yorda, right? Mm -hmm. um, no, I never uh, got the impression that because Yorda is trying to escape, that is why she needs to be sacrificed. I mean, why else would she be kept in a cage then? Yeah, before you even meet her. Mm -hmm. You know, she's yeah. she's obviously imprisoned there for a reason, and you know, I I think that reason for her imprisonment. She's backup food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, she she's being imprisoned because her fate is to be sacrificed to, um, you know, uh, extend the queen's power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely what I was getting. Well, I think you know, and as uh, we said before, I mean, I think with this game, just like Shadow of Colossus, I mean, there with, with the Team Eco's games, there there are no solidified ways to think about these games. They're completely open for interpretation. Mm -hmm. and I think that's, to me, I mean, you know, to having the background that I do, I mean, that's that's what I love about them. I mean, this, there's so much mystery um, and that you're not able to put something together that's completely solid. I mean, you know, you're, you're able to put something together that's coherent and that makes an actual good story, but there are always these lingering sort of questions that you have to, um, you know, come to terms with on your own. And, and, and make your own story out of that. And I think that's the real beauty and brilliance of these games. Exactly. I mean, that's why um, it still holds up today. Because it gives you enough to make sense of the story. And if you want to piece together, you know, a, a theory based on the environment or the context of what you're doing, you can but it's not necessary to do so in order to get an appreciation for the game. And that really makes it timeless. Like it, this game will probably be as good now um, as it will be in, you know, 10 years from now. And, you know, I'm sure in 2014, this game is as good as it was back in 2001. If you compare that to something that was made this year, last year, you know, we will probably look back and say, you know, oh, this game is so too south. 2013 and so you know it's got all those um gimmicks and and tropes and cliches of that whatever was popular at that time period hmm. so i think that's a good spot to kind of move on to uh like the final boss battle and the ending credit sequence all that uh, how do you guys feel about um, like the fight with all of the different uh, shadow uh, boys there at the end and all right, I guess we should start at the uh, the opening of the gate. Yeah, you know, I was gonna say there's a there's a really to me the best moment in the game is after the gate opens, mm -hmm. right? When yeah, you're crossing definitely. the bridge, when the bridge um, starts separating, and Eco's on one side and Yorda's on the other side, there's a split second where you have control of Eco, and you it, it's amazing in that split second you have to decide what to do and I, I don't know what you what your options really are but in the end I ended up uh, you know running back and jumping into to have Yorda catch me exactly so I, mean, I, I, I think um it's not even that you have a decision is you know you explicitly know what to do because right right you, you've spent so much time with these characters and you've grown to like them right like, exactly but then don't you have this like cognitive dissonance as a gamer which is like what happens if i jump in the river or if i go the other way like <laughs> yeah. but but your heart makes you jump into yorda's arms mm -hmm. which i thought was one of the most powerful 
moments and actually for me like redeemed any frustrations i had with the game which were on me for not liking environmental puzzles were like washed away by that one split second of oh my god i gotta go back and i i, I have to go back exactly you know what yeah I mean? um, like, what a beautiful moment well how powerful yeah after the whole game you're trying to escape the castle and you're finally free and you realize nope i want to go back yep. yeah it's um you know a true you know depiction and, and really honest um just like tale of not even like love between two people but like the compassion and sympathy between two people yeah yeah it's that moment in the game where you realize i am really a part of this game yeah you know because you're like oh you know without even thinking about it you're trying to jump I mean, mm -hmm, you exactly even, you don't even hesitate you know i mean it's like oh i gotta get over there you know i, I can't leave her behind you know it, it's it's that moment in the game you know and it, it's beautiful like you said it's it's fascinating I think I had uh, talked to a friend about this before he went to play the game uh, recently, and uh, I mentioned what I did. And so I think intentionally he uh, tried to get her to jump to him just to see what would happen. And uh, he said that you could hold your arm out there, but uh, she just doesn't do anything. She just sits there and mopes. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> uh, just waits for you to come for her. Let's sort of put that, you know, let's reconstruct that scene. Um, Yorda has opened. Um, the last gate or she's she's a conduit to, to open uh you know both doors or whatever mm. and you can see that she's not as shiny <laughs> and yeah. um she kind of shuffles her feet and, and limps behind you so you can't run with her you have to walk um yeah unless you want her to fall down every few seconds exactly yeah um so like she's been weakened by um definitely like opening the gates and perhaps the whole ordeal that they've been through mm. and and so you 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 level with her and you like carefully gently lead her out of uh, across the bridge i should say and and at that moment like you kind of feel like yeah we're, we did it we're we're out of here but then the queen appears and and starts to retract the bridge and you, you realize that Yorda's just as invested in you as you are in her by, mm -hmm. by you know, calling you over to her and, and, and rescuing you. And, you know, like, obviously, my mind immediately went to that first scene where um, there's a bridge that crumbles and, and you uh, uh, help Yorda jump across. And now it's just like, you know, you saved me, I saved you, you know, like, we're we're really in this together now mm -hmm. yeah i feel like uh, that's uh, sort of a tipping point towards the end of the game uh, where like you said it's changed from you're trying to save her and then the second half of the game or second quarter i suppose uh, you're uh, being rescued by her mm -hmm. at that point and uh, like uh, you still have to go find her but once you do find her you fight the final boss and uh, she ends up saving you mm -hmm. in the end mm -hmm. which i thought was really powerful too yeah what did you guys think about um, uh, the gameplay after that, um, the kind of solo gameplay? It was kind of odd in a sense because, you know, here you are, you're, you're alone again, you're not dragging someone around. Uh, you know, it's, you know, still the same puzzle elements and things like that, but, uh, you know, you're, um, you're, you're weaponless as well, mm -hmm. which is sort of strange. And, you know, uh, I guess you don't have to worry about shadows because you don't have Yorda with you, but... Uh, at the same time, to me, it was a it was a little bit odd, you know, it was mm. a, sort of a lengthy 
piece too. And still some uh, frustrating puzzles left too, like that sewer uh, puzzle with all the water wheels. Uh, that was that was a real struggle. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I think it was meant to. It was meant to feel odd. You you were meant to feel alone. alone. Yeah, and you were you know meant to feel isolated and. Having spent so much time trying to get out of the castle, now you're out and you need to get back in. So it's it is just as you as you put it, Rich. It was odd and strange, and that's exactly what they were going for. They and you know they nailed it. So mm-hmm. so now back to where I, uh, I thought we should jump in earlier, uh, but I moved us around a bit. Uh, the uh, fight with the Shadow Boys uh, when yeah. she uh, Yorda's kind of statue body uh laying at the top there how do you guys feel about that because uh, for me when i was doing it i almost thought it was an endless fight uh, because i just couldn't tell uh, exactly uh when it was going to end until you realize that the coffins are lighting up every time you kill one of them yeah right yeah, I, same, I noticed same that thing too. happened to me man I, mm-hmm. I i didn't i didn't catch on to that at first that they, that each uh each cell had a had a dude coming out of it and i didn't know if you guys noticed but you can actually do nothing and like they won't hurt you and they won't hurt Yorda. You can actually, and, and sometimes they, they're kind of hard to hit. They, they dodge you very well, but if you just stand there and do nothing, they won't do anything to you. It's, it's a very strange, like uh, sensation, uh, you know, in a game. I didn't realize. Mm -hmm. I just assumed that they were going to start attacking me like the other ones did. Yeah, no, it's pretty neat. And I wonder actually, like, what we think of that as far as like, who, you know, who they are and and what you're doing to them. I guess I haven't put too much thought to it. As far as I know, that uh, they're just supposed to be um, the previous horned boys because yeah. all of them have horns and they kind of look similar to you, uh, sort of. Right, and I'm, but I'm saying in the context of, you know, like the. Like they won't actually hurt you; they're just kind of menacing you and just jumping mm. around and. Like, I wonder if, in, in a way, you're, like, releasing them, kind of, in the way that you released yourself, if you know what yeah. I'm saying. Like, it's too late for them, but you know what I mean? Like, you're freeing yeah, them. Maybe I'm reading too much sense. into it. I don't know. So, uh, well, they're sort of, like, stuck in limbo in this fortress, and, uh, yeah, you're trying to release their souls or whatever uh, right. to go on. They're just around being annoying. Maybe running away from each If they want that, just stand still. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it's a, p- a possible reading that you could put into it that um, you know by by killing them with that you know light powered sword, you're, you're letting them move on. Um, but yeah, they they are benevolent spirits, and even when you're trying to escape with Yorda and they pull her back into that you know black void. They're not hurting you, and they're not explicitly hurting Yorda. So why are you attacking them, mm. right? It, it makes you question, is this place really evil? Right, and I think it's going back again to that theme of, am I doing the right thing here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, don't, uh, I don't think I ever actually considered that when I was playing. I just uh, thought that the whole place was related to the queen and... She kind of turned all these uh, shadow creatures to evil, and uh, to me it was pretty straightforward. But uh, I could see that, yeah, it uh, might go the other way as well. Yeah, it didn't feel as um, these shadow creatures were quite as benevolent as 
say, the um, the shadows that appear uh, during Shadow of the Colossus, if that makes sense. Well, yeah. um, th- those shadows are totally different, right? Like, they're, um, what they are is totally up to speculation and up to debate, but um, they just stand around you. They could be the spirits that are contained within the Colossi, or they could be um, components of Dorman himself. Um, whereas in, in Eco, these are definitely the spirits of um, the horned children that have been brought here by the villagers. They're gone. They've, you know, they've um, ascended into some kind of afterlife. You know, thus their sort of ethereal, shadowy um, uh, composition. But, you know, I, I found like, you know, why am I really attacking these other than that other than them vanishing by my doing so. Well, these are, these, these horn boys are, you know, on essence, um, uh, basically a food source or a power source for the queen. So in essence in taking them out, maybe weakening her at the same time. You know, that that's very likely. Like I wouldn't be surprised if that is the, um, official purpose of those shadows. Yeah. Yeah. It, but the, just to kind of get back to the point of that battle or series of battles, I guess um, it was a little, it felt a little contrived. Um, it was, you know, not the most exciting thing. I mean, luckily you had upgraded your weapon at the time. You could one hit them, which was nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it did feel a little tedious to me. It, it didn't feel necessary. I didn't, um, you know, kind of reflecting on it. Yeah. I'm coming up with some things, but at the time and the moment of the game, I, you know, it, it felt unnecessary. It just felt like a hoop I had to jump through at the time. It dragged on, and just because those uh, shadowy creatures were so nimble and agile that they could dodge any move of yours, kind of just made it yeah, feel too long. Just <laughs> above the height of your uh, swing mm-hmm. when yeah. they're flying. Yeah, it was it was an emotionless battle. Yeah. I mean, I'd been battling so many shadow monsters that were, you know, trying to grab Yorda the whole time that. This battle, I, I did not feel any type of sympathy for these creatures. It was just like, let me just dispatch them as quick as possible. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think, um, you know, now, because like, we can look back at this with hind- hindsight. Right. And um, perhaps uh, a more impactful and more um, meaningful scene to replace that would be, you know, any number of, of horned boys, let's say five of them, surrounding Yorda's body who will push Eco back if he tries to approach her. And then the only way to get rid of them is to just hack and slash through them, which would then open up the, the gate to the throne room and then you go fight the queen. You know, it would it would be just as symbolic, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Or and, and I think that's what the creators are probably going for, something a little bit emotional there, but I feel like it failed. Because um, it was too like long-winded, if- right? Right, and they were kind of jumping around. You had to chase them down. If if they were just like motionless and standing there, and the only way to open that door was to hack through all of them, mm-hmm. and they were just sort of sacrificing themselves, I think there would have been more of an emotional tie there. Definitely, and, yeah. and it would have made you kind of reflect on that moment a little bit more. But the fact that they were jumping around, and it felt like you know these are just additional shadow creatures, and maybe you put together that these were the shadows of those boys. You know, I, I think a lot more could have been done there to draw sort of the emotion of the story. Hmm. 
just just my opinion on that. I, I felt kind of like I was jumping through a hoop. Um, and just something yeah, exactly. I had to do to get to that last battle. Yeah, definitely. It, it was a very um, video gamey moment, and yeah. it, it was like the only video gamey moment aside from the final battle. But um, yeah, it could have been done differently and much more effectively, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like uh, though, uh, just because of how long it was, uh, it almost felt like that was the final battle. Because uh, when we get to the actual final boss, that it was such an easy fight once you figured out what to do that it was actually pretty disappointing. I mean, uh, what, three hits to get rid of the shield and the fourth hit to kill her? Like, Something like that, just, yeah, but it, yeah, it did take a while to get those four hits in, right? Yeah, but uh, even with that, it just felt uh, like, I mean, you compare it to the... Uh, I, I know we're trying not to compare it too much, but uh, to the ending of Shadow of the Colossus, the fight there, and such a big difference in difficulty for the battles. <laughs> and then this, uh, the final battle is just like okay well i figured out what to do and now just rinse and repeat for three more times and i'm done the game mm-hmm. i mean I, I i guess it's um it couldn't really have been any different because you do have that light magic sword and the queen is obviously um dark magic so you do already have that upper edge on her mm-hmm. so you know it, it's it's only going to be you know a matter of time it's not really a matter of how but just a matter of when you're going to um get rid of her <laughs> yeah though i have yeah. to say i really like the visuals in that fight uh, like the shockwave yeah. effect mm-hmm. and uh, the spreading of the particles around the things that are defending you yeah definitely pillars. um did you guys realize that once you had that sword you could um just walk right up to the queen or were you still hiding behind those idol statues took me a while to realize that, but I did figure that out about halfway through the fight. Oh, okay. No, I, I, I hid behind the statues the whole time. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, that definitely would have made it a lot more difficult, because once I realized that, then I realized, well, I can just run to the sword, and I don't have to run back, as long as I can just run halfway there, mm-hmm. then I'm safe. Were you, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure you were aware that you could pull and push the statues, though, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that helped a lot, especially when the uh, sword was hit really far back, I think, uh, for the final hit on the shield there and you had to go down the stairs a couple uh steps farther mm-hmm. um that one really helped having this i think farther. um i think it was like a five hit battle but three of those five um hits were with the sword really far at the back of the room something like that yeah so i i had to stay behind those um statues most of the time yeah i um as far as the final battle was concerned i I, I didn't feel, I mean, I felt that it was a fairly simple battle, of course, but in essence, to me, the game was a puzzle game, so mm-hmm. it didn't bother me as much that, that this wasn't some difficult battle as, you know, the final battle in um, Shadow of the Colossus. Um, That's true, uh, but I, I feel like uh, because it is a puzzle game, they could have introduced a little more puzzle elements or just something to make it more difficult, but it felt very straightforward. Mm-hmm. I, ju- yeah, I just like found the that whole ending the sequence battle. to be more symbolic than anything like it didn't have to be could have been a difficult battle could have been an easy battle but it's the sure. symbolism behind it that was um, most important that's true absolutely the, uh, the main point there and there was a lot of symbolism in that final battle uh, when you first strike her and get thrown back you lose one of your horns mm-hmm. uh, i guess you guys saw that as well yeah. so um you know and there was sort of the evolution and i guess was it the final strike you lose your um 
your second horn, right? Right. And they're both like broken off by the end. So that was where you this... get knocked into the wall, and, uh, right. unconscious. Right. And there's this feeling that you can now possibly rejoin society, you know, without that, uh, you know, sort of outer appearance. Yeah, I was thinking about that, that when you I had played before. You know, there's sort of an evolution of that character as well, which is uh, a part of that final battle. So I, I think that the final battle to me, like, you know, had the intended effect. Uh, yeah, it wasn't difficult. It wasn't very long. And you kind of, you know, average length sort of battle. But, um, you know, with the game, I, I felt like it fit mm-hmm, you know, definitely. With, with the rest of the game. Uh, and so I, I thought it was very appropriate for that reason. Yeah, I guess most of the fights throughout the game were kind of the same and like once you figured out what to do it was simple it was just tedious um so it, it did fit in that respect i just um at the time i was kind of like oh that's it like uh there's nothing else <laughs> but, uh, i did really uh i did enjoy it like the visuals and the story aspects of it uh, it was it was good it was just from a game's perspective it wasn't quite as uh exciting i guess how about you sean how did you feel about the final battle I thought it was fine. Um, I didn't realize that hitting the shield was doing anything at first. And I, I think I died or something. And I was like, what the, What am I supposed to do? Mm, but that's true. I, that happened to me too. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's it's obviously not doing anything because your sword goes flying out of your hands. You know what I mean? So I <laughs> I kind of didn't get it at first. But um, I, 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 I'm with you guys that it was just kind of like a... You know, it was more about the kind of like we said about all the combat in the game. It just serves the story, and this is the climax, and it caps off the mm. story. Like this is your main antagonist; you got to fight her. It's a little bit, you know, cliched or classic or you know, video gamey or whatever. Especially in the context of this game, having a final boss battle is kind of weird after all that what, what we've talked about, you know. But I didn't have a problem with it per se like it, it, you know it was fine i, I didn't like or dislike it, it made more sense to me than like like fighting the, the the spirits of the the shadows right before it legit like just like you guys were saying hmm. yeah yeah I, I agree that some puzzle elements probably would have helped you know some sort of uh, you know puzzle elements to the final battle might have might have helped might have helped the uh, transition from puzzle to sort of uh, action adventure be a little more seamless i guess is what i want to say yeah but so um the queen is uh of course you dispatch the queen and then you move on with the rest of the story and um fairly interesting um kind of a bizarre ending uh, again um one of the things that i really liked about the game is um how the beginning you're you're brought in on this boat um and the uh the the villagers or whoever that are bringing you in are using that sword to sort of open up um, the uh, the doors and everything. And that's sort of, again, something I really liked about the game I spoke about earlier was how it sort of falls back on itself. And you're actually going through that chamber. You actually see the boat that they bring to the island or mm-hmm. the fortress in. And uh, I just think that's really cool. And then we, we see it in the ending as... Uh, a shadowy figure, which is obviously Yorda, uh, definitely a female presence. Who, someone who cares a lot about us is uh, toting our body around and uh, putting us in the boat and uh, getting us out of there before the uh, basically the castle crumbles. 
Yeah, like I said earlier, and I really like how uh, you go from saving her throughout the game to at the end she ends up being the one to save you. And it's kind of a bit of a reversal there, just like you said, going back on itself. Mm -hmm. I, I thought that was a really uh, beautiful moment um, in that the, I guess this is the spirit of Yorda that um, carries Eco out to the boat and casts the boat into the water. And it's the way I interpret it was that this was Yorda's way of saying, you know, thank you for everything you did for me like we we didn't succeed in the end but thank you you know i i am grateful for the time we have spent together mm. um which uh i think you, know, you did sort of succeed it's just in a different way than uh, you had planned well i mean well your um I, the way i saw it was that you know this is yorda's uh spirit so she she's either like you know just in, entombed in that uh you know petrified state you know forever and the the fortress is crumbling so that's that's the end of her and and she's sending you off so that you can live you know you mm. sacrificed yourself for her and now she's doing that for you yeah because you you've created that that bond between each other and um just sort of like at, at that moment in my in my mind, I was thinking of the main title theme song, which is which is called "You Were There," and it um, it really yeah through the just, credits as well uh, yeah and it plays through the credits too and it just that phrase not even necessarily the whole song but that phrase really encapsulates that final moment where where Yorda Yorda's spirit or if that's Yorda herself carries Eco out of the castle and and casts him out in the boat. Hmm. Yeah, it's just like, uh, thank you, uh, you were there for me, kind of thing. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And uh, But then we get to the credits, and everything's been destroyed, uh, which uh, I, th I feel like the Queen's power uh, was what was holding the castle together, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, as she's weakening, everything was kind of crumbling. Mm -hmm. uh, throughout the game, you see all the ruins, and then at the end, she dies, and the whole castle dies with her. Right. Um, uh, but then the credits end, and you wash up on a beach. And uh, past the credits, you get a little bit of gameplay, which is something you don't often see in many games. Yeah, I, I just wanted yeah. to make a note on the whole credit sequence itself. Just um, doing that, like almost chronological order of just um, aerial shots of every place you visited, really gave you that sense of closure and really gave you that sense of like we did come a long way. Mm -hmm. I always like when games give a retrospective like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, the um, the hands-on gameplay after the credit. Yeah, it was uh, really interesting, uh, like uh, just being able to explore this beach and it's kind of a paradise compared to what you had been in so far. And uh, you're walking along, and at the end you end up finding Yorda. Uh, she's washed up on the shore. And, yeah. Um, she says something, and uh, then the game just kind of fades to black. That that was um, an unusual moment for me. Mm -hmm. um, just. For one, waking up on uh, the shore, and um, I think Eco has a really neat animation that he kind of just flops out of the uh, out of the boat. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. Um, which yeah, it kind of goes with like he's you know been physically um, damaged by this whole ordeal. Um, but you know when I uh, ended up on the shore, I thought like, is this it? You know, I'm alone. You know, it's. Mm. I'm I'm glad to have experienced everything that I did. I'm glad to be free. I'm glad to have um, done all of this with Yorda. But 
she's gone and I'm alone. And, you know, the, these uh, cliff walls look so, so menacing and, and ominous, so tall. And, you know, I thought this is the end of, uh, of Eco. Hmm. Um, well, thought... you, you kind of get a feeling, though, like it's a new, it's a new chance at life, though. I mean, the horns are gone now. Um, it, it is, you know, yeah, it, it is a bit of a new beginning, too, but um, it's, it's, it's a new beginning that you start off with a bit of, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's a, it's bittersweet. You know, you're, you're, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure Eco can be, um, um, excited to be able to reintegrate into society, but it's without this person that he's grown so attached to. Hmm. But then you run into her, and I, I don't know. It, it seemed like a, it, it seemed like sort of a bailout to me. I don't know. I, I think I was kind of happy with the ending as it was before hmm. running up the beach and, and running into her. I, I, I don't know, and, and that's sort of my personality, I guess, with um, you know movies and things like that. Um, you know, I, I don't like the, the movies and the narratives that are tied up in a little bow at the end. And, and not that I'm saying this was, because I, I don't. I think there's still a lot of questions. And you know concerns that we have for these characters, um, you know, in their future. Uh, but at the same time, I I sort of thought I might have been able to deal with do without that. I think I had kind of accepted the fate, and that this you know this girl had sort of made the ultimate sacrifice mm -hmm. uh, for me to help me, um, you know, start afresh and anew and. Mm -hmm. And continue to live, you know, and, and I was okay with that ending. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like uh, the, the after credits thing almost felt like they were trying to uh, leave themselves an out if they ever wanted to do a sequel or something like that, because this was their first game, and it felt like they were just leaving themselves an opening there where they could elaborate on some further story between these two characters if they wanted to. Yeah, maybe, who knows? Um, but I just thought, uh, you know, washing up on that shore and then finding Yorda's body was just such a such a, a, a shocking moment it's you know at yeah. least you know you're not going to be alone right so it's I definitely was in awe at the end I, yeah I and really I, I just had it. this like I, I like I really felt like I'm genuinely grateful that Eco can be with Yorda again but how is she here like how is it that I thought she crumbled with the castle. Just like, um, actually, uh, when you uh, fall off the bridge after uh, she's tried to rescue you uh, earlier in uh, the game, and uh, you're like, wait, how did I survive? And like you uh, appear on those big uh, circular cage things, and mm -hmm. you're like, I just fell like a thousand feet. I don't know how I survived this. It's kind of the same thing yeah. here, but now with Yorda instead of Vico. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it really just adds to the sort of the the fairy tale mystique that we spoke about before, you know, there's these, mm -hmm. there's these moments of action that are, you know, unexplainable. Uh, you know, how do you fall? How do you live through that? How does she end up washing up on the beach? There's your sort of, you know, your happy ending. At least they have each other, you know, not necessarily the happily ever after, but you know, at least they still have each other. And so that, you know, just kind of draws into that as well. Yeah. It turned it from a tragedy to a bit more of a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So now that we've sort of just discussed the game and talked about it, which I think you know we've done a pretty comprehensive job of talking mm -hmm. about the game, as, as you mentioned, you know we, we have this ending and it, it leaves things sort of open ended. Uh, 
for uh, Team Eco to make a new game, and we know that that next release was, of course, Shadow of the Colossus. So I think we should maybe speak about, obviously, you know, there's some sort of relationship between these two games. I mean, there are uh, there, there are tropes, and mm. there are similarities of the characters that exist in both games, and so I, I don't know if you can, I don't know if the puzzle fits completely together nicely, but I, but I think, you know, all of us probably, our, our wheels were turning in our heads yeah. as, as we're playing this game, and, and, you know, I'd like to get, you know, just sort of everyone's thoughts on, you know, how these sort of games interconnect the storylines. I, I think for me the I main connection there is the uh, horns on the boy. Like mm-hmm. I think that's the main thing because at the end of Shadow of the Colossus there, which is the uh, prequel, uh, you have uh, the young uh, boy there, uh, like the kind of devolution of the main character uh, with the horns. And uh, it feels to me like uh, the boys that you see in the castle in Eco are descendants uh, through the ages uh, from this uh, past uh, person who created this sin uh, that um, carried through his lineage. And uh, I, I feel like uh, the villagers remember, or at least the village elders, uh, elders remember uh, what uh, kind of what happened uh, in the past, and they don't want to have that repeat. Do you think this was sort of like a, as we know at the end of Shadow of the Colossus, our main character, uh, gosh, what's the name? Wonder. Uh, Wander is pulled in, is pulled in to this void and um, sort of turned into this baby with horns. Mm-hmm. That's that's is transformed into that. Do you think that possibly being a prequel that this was sort of this um, he was turned into this baby as sort of a reminder of tempting the fates and that from then on you know other babies were possibly born with this. Um, uh, I guess defect. Uh, <laughs> this yeah, omen. Defect. This would be a good good term. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of a reminder of things past. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's sort of how how I sort of drew the games together. Yeah, that's uh, pretty much what I thought too. Uh, just uh, something to make sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, something that uh, the uh, elders can uh, do to kind of keep the people in check. It's like, uh, all right, we'll get rid of these uh, bad omens and. Uh, our village will be safe for another year or whatever. Um, I, I initially came into Eco thinking that this is um, a sequel to uh, Shadow of the Colossus. Oh, really? I, I, I no, came, I came in, fine. yeah, no, I came in thinking that um, this boy is the horned baby from uh, Colossus. Or, sorry, yeah, uh, no, I, yes. I agree. Yeah, that's yeah. how it actually is. Sorry, I misinterpreted what you said there. Uh, yeah, this is the sequel. Yeah, yeah oh. having never played the other one before and just seeing like, the cover and seeing the horns on the cover of Eco, I, I felt the same way, Floyd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and even in the um, opening moments, and it's. I, I don't know why this isn't um, explicitly told in the game, but I believe it's in the manual and it's definitely on um i actually think that eco's website is still active so i think it's actually on on the eco website and it says that once every hundred years a horned boy is born 
which is a bad omen, and it's to remind the um, the, the the community of oh you know you name it you know past uh, past sins past trans transgressions you name whatever you want to mm -hmm. interpret. Um, so you know uh, that that kind of you you can sort of use that to tie into uh, Shadow as well. But I do think that these two games are standalone experiences and standalone stories. That if there's yeah. any connection, it's just the geography of the two. Maybe they could be happening on the same continent, or they could just be perhaps happening on the same uh, world. Yeah, I'll say even before playing um, Eco, I was thinking that maybe the castle or the dungeon that you were escaping from was the same castle. Because I, I made that connection at the beginning with the bridges, mm -hmm. you know, the bridge that transverses like the sky. Uh, the skyline and shadow of the Colossus. So mm -hmm. I thought, you know, maybe these are the same places, but obviously they're absolutely they're not. I, I just tend to agree that this is, you know, that these horn boys are just sort of a reminder of sort of past transgression, and um, you know that's that's about as connected as these two games are. You know, but I think I think that's appropriate. That's enough. I don't I don't think they need to um, create a you know an entire mythology, but just having you know just a, a you know sort of bits and pieces of pieces of that is to sort of tie in the two games from the same developer it's it's nice i think it's nice and i'm hoping um, that when those other games come out please um that uh, we'll maybe see some we'll we'll maybe see some more of that right i mean i just yeah, I, I think it's it's beautiful i mean it's it's beautiful when developers and designers can um, can can do that i mean they you know, they they've made their mark in these two games, and they're just so beautiful and fascinating. Of course, of course, people are clamoring for more. Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm, people that right. really appreciate games that are beautiful and and fun to play and just well done. I mean, I mean, who wouldn't want more of this? Yeah, yeah. Ueda and his team have definitely created a very memorable world and uh, mythology and and culture within um, within their games and. You know they they don't have to be connected, um, like uh, I don't think they are. Um, you know I, I'm I'm sort of led to think that the rest of us don't exactly think that they're connected. Maybe maybe very loosely, and and if you want to make the connections, then they're perhaps happening on adjacent continents or something like that. But um, they do relate to each other while not being directly related and and you know they're they do relate um or i should say they're not directly connected but they relate in the in the sense that they um both happen within the same set of rules mm -hmm. so i guess we, we've sort of put the two games together compared them um see if there was any relation and i, I like where we've ended up with this um but just kind of going back to both games i think i my, my kind of final question and what I'd like to everyone to talk about, um, if you had to choose, you know, between um, Eco and Shadow of the Colossus, which game did you prefer? Shadow. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> that was quick. <laughs> that, that was just like you were <laughs> definitive yeah. about that. I was about to say how tough of a decision it was, but apparently not. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, for me it was pretty clearly Shadow of the Colossus. I don't know, just everything about it uh, felt more polished and uh, yeah. I didn't feel really frustrated by anything in that compared to this where it was 
occasional moments of uh, wow, this is awesome, and then a lot of moments of this is really frustrating. Can I yeah. can I just yeah. remind yeah. you of Malice? Yeah, he was a giant <laughs> headache. I I think when I did yeah. that battle, it took you know two hours or three hours. <laughs> That's true, but even with that, it's still like uh, the whole time you're thinking, oh, this is just like epic fight and right and that after that two hours aren't you so satisfied that you took them down you know oh no no i i, I agree and, and that's that's exactly um the intent of that whole um set piece but um no i i, I think if you're going to talk about being frustrated within a game yeah i was definitely frustrated with uh with the malice fight <laughs> if it's really hard to say uh, which one I prefer yeah. over the two because um, yeah. they're both so fantastic uh, and um, you know I, I both like them uh, very much but for different reasons and, and both games set out to achieve very different things and that's why I like them uh, uh, as, as two um, related things as well as two separate entities Um but you know since the question is which one would you say you prefer i would say that i preferred eco because it was more um laid back um experience it was it was a more meditative thing it, it you know i playing this it's it was enriching and you know i could um learn something about myself because i had the opportunity to to go through this journey yeah that's deep, man. <laughs> <laughs> He's a deep guy, ladies. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm kind of with you, Floyd. I mean, I in in the sense that I, I don't think that I, I know this is a horrible way to get out of this, and but you know what? It's my question, so I can do what I want. Um, I. Uh, I really feel like I, I couldn't choose between the two if I had to choose being such vastly different games. But but I will make a distinction in this. If I had to say, if someone asked me, hey, I'm thinking about playing one of these two games, which one should I play first? I would, direct, I would always say, um, I, I guess it would depend on the person first of all, but I would probably recommend Shadow of the Colossus first. Mm. Um, just because it's so awesome it's so in enriching it's it's so action-packed and it's just so cool um and, and badass and you know just to get someone hooked i think that shadow of the colossus is a better primer for eco than eco being a good primer for shadow of the colossus oh i i, I completely agree and like I'm, I'm happy that I was able to play shadow before eco because it, if it had been the other way around i i think i would have entered shadow of the colossus with a lot of apprehension wow i have a lot of mixed feelings about what you guys are saying right now like <laughs> i'm well, like okay. half this, agreeing uh, with you and half not okay. feeling well, it's weird let, let's hear your uh two cents on fly. this well i'm thinking like if i were gonna tell somebody okay like which team eco game would you play first i i've you know on the one hand i would say eco because it's it's shorter and the me the mechanics are simpler and with shadow of the colossus i you know i i got i like 
thinking about it, I like that game more. It's it, that was more of a game for me, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah. objectively, I'm not sure which game is better because, like we're like we've been saying, it, it's not. It's not that one game is a realization. Like Shadow of the Colossus is not a realization of promises made by Eco, as Rich has explained. They're like they're more like a yin and yang to each other than they are some kind of improvement. You mm-hmm. know, and not to say there weren't improvements because there are in any you know as technology and the development team learns more and everything. But I don't know. I just think like. After thinking about it, I would I would put my vote with I liked Shadow of the Colossus more, even though like I actually put that game down for like a year because I was stuck on one of them. I can't remember which one, but I just stopped playing that game for a long time and went back to it and was really glad I was able to finish it. But I never was I don't think I was ever stumped in that game of what to do, whereas like almost a hundred percent of any frustration I had with eco was that again, I'm just not good at environmental puzzles. So for me as the audience, I would say shadow, but if somebody was saying, well, you know, I want to get into these games. I think I would say play eco first. Cause most people are into that kind of stuff, you know, like, or I think most gamers can handle it better than I could. And it's a shorter game and, you know, you have that little emotional connection and all that other stuff. Yeah, I think I have to agree there. Because for me, I tend to recommend starting on the earlier games in the series, or even where it's not a series, like it's just from the same developer. Um, because uh, the mechanics that they've been fine-tuning and everything, and uh, their um, methods of development, it just all improves uh, later on, for the most part anyways, uh, with uh, games like these. And right. uh, so I feel like it's better to kind of start on the one that's not quite as polished and then f- finish off with the better one. So then the, the memories you leave with uh, from both games are more likely to have a better memory uh, because you'll be ending on the better of the two games. Right. And picture if, if you have a friend and you tell him or her to play Eco and, the, and then he or she finish is, finishes Eco and says, wow, that was really great. Then you get to say... Well, wait until you try Shadow of the Colossus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know exactly. what I mean? Like, and you like couldn't do that the other way around. Kind of, yeah, the other way around. It's like you're starting off great and then getting like uh, to the one that's good, but it's not as great. Right. Well, see, my my thing is, I think the and you know, I, I could be completely wrong on this, but I, I feel like the more modern gamer is more of the action adventure gamer. I mean, you know, it's sort of reflective in games like you know, the Call of Duty series, you know, the, the shooty shoots, the action adventure, hmm. um, you know, the more, um, I want to say more violent type games, you know, with, you know, titles like Grand Theft Auto and things like that. So I feel like... Even The Last of Us as well? Yeah, yeah. And and I feel like the, the more modern gamers is more, you know, into that type of atmosphere, which I think Shadow of the Colossus lends itself more to. And so it would, it would honestly, it would depend on my audience, but I would say that you know that would be the majority audience of, of the mod, more modern gamer, and for that reason, I would probably choose that one first. And with the, I think with that game, yeah, the action adventure is awesome. You love it, but I think the whole cinematic, the whole minimalistic approach to the game, the beauty in that game unfolds itself in a way to where it really prepares you to play something as beautiful as Eco. And so, for that reason, that's that's why I would you know suggest 
you know, Shadow of the Colossus first uh, because it, it gives you a taste of it. But Eco is by far more a more reflective and sort of beautiful game that I think playing that secondary to me works better. And I, you know, I, I feel that way. I feel like that's why I'm glad we, you know, went that route with the playthroughs. And I feel like I appreciated Eco more and was more excited about playing it. Uh, after finishing Shadow of the Colossus, because I had originally thought, well, this is just sort of a, just sort of a get out of a tower game. How fun can that be? You know, I mean, mm. and and so after playing Shadow of the Colossus, I mean, I was so primed to play uh, Eco, and I think that's a lot of the reason, because of the just again just beauty and, and cinematic and minimalistic approach of uh, Team Eco. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with everything you said, and, and I would make my recommendations for those same reasons. Like, to me, Shadow of the Colossus is, if I had to compare it to anything, it's like going into the gym and doing a hell of a workout, and then Eco is just that really relaxing soak in a hot tub or, or, or sauna or something like that. He likes hot tubs, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but no, I think if somebody just stopped me on the street and said, oh, I play video games, I want to try something from the PS2 era, um, what do you recommend? I would recommend uh, Shadow first. And then I'd just say, like, if you like that, try Eco. And, just, you know, if you don't like it, that's fine. If you do, that's great. But if they're more of a niche reflective, um, you know, easygoing type gamer, I'd, I'd put Eco as my primary recommendation. But, I mean, given um, that the question was which one would you recommend, I, I would, I'd still go with Shadow for the exact same reasons that uh, Rich has already listed. Yeah, I, th I guess I sort of partially agree with what you and Rich are saying and partially with Sean. Um, it depends on the audience, and uh, if it was someone who I thought that them playing Eco first might turn them off of Shadow, I would I would agree I'd go with Shadow first. But if it's someone who I thought that was um, a little bit more patient and willing to give Eco a try and also Shadow, no matter what they thought of Eco, then I think uh, that uh, the better way uh, to go for me, anyways, is uh, start with Eco and then go to Shadow, um, just from a development of the game mechanics and storyline kind of way. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, I, th I think if it was someone I was worried might just drop uh, the developer altogether and not even touch Shadow after Eco, then uh, I would probably more likely say just start with Shadow. Yeah, I, I think Eco is also more accessible to a casual gamer. And because like you can do a puzzle or two, save your game, and then not touch it for a day or two days or a week. Well, I was sort of thinking the opposite, that uh, Shadow was a bit more accessible just because of the action. Like, uh, Eco is so reflective, and I mean, to some people they would call it boring. No, no, but like, I, I mean to the casual game or somebody who just plays games a little bit. Um, oh, okay. You know, maybe they, they don't have the, uh, you know, the, the, the dexterity or the reflexes to, to do like a hardcore game, right? Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, like, they just want to drop in, drop out, have some fun, and call it a day for that game. Um, which is like, this is a tangent, but that's the same reason I'm really enjoying my time with Fez, because I can turn it on for an hour, you know, collect some cute pieces, turn it off, and feel satisfied. 
It's just yeah, like with, with with eco, I can start playing, do a puzzle. You know, if that's all the time that I have, that's fine. I can turn off the game and feel satisfied. If I doing or playing through um, playing through Shadow of the Colossus, I really like you get a huge adrenaline rush, and you like you feel like you're on a roll, and you just you want to do more than one boss in one mm. sitting, right? All right. Well, I think if there's nothing else that anyone has to talk about, that probably about wraps it up. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I you know really appreciate you um, joining us. Um, it, again, something we mentioned before the call, and it mentioned this time. This was one of the good, those games that all four of us actually played, and uh, was just a really neat experience. Uh, you know, hearing um, people say that they were done with the game, and uh, just a lot of fun. I mean, just very interactive. Few of us were kind of texting back and forth or sending uh, PMs to each other about just our experience and how much we were enjoying the game, and uh, or um, is in Sean's case getting I, I was uh, got a kick out of uh, hearing Sean's frustrations about the game, but <laughs> and ultimately really uh, happy that uh, that he had a uh, favorable review of the game. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was that was that was sort of uh, you just went 180, and it was it was amazing. And, and I thought that that was really cool. And says yeah, a lot you about went from uh, disliking the whole thing to just being in love with it, which that's that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Again, yeah. maybe I sh- I got to get better about n- not. Uh, I got to get better about not just posting when I'm mad. You know, I. I I'm, I'm <laughs> oh getting... no! Please do keep doing that. <laughs> no, there are so, there are certainly times when I'm frustrated by the games that we're playing, but I I really have to temper myself and like because I love the I I enjoy, well I shouldn't say I love the ego I I certainly enjoyed my time with it especially looking back because hmm. like right now I'm not jumping off cliffs and getting you know having monsters come after me like I'm left more with the themes and the story and everything because like as as Floyd was saying earlier. You know, part of the story for me is not eco diving off a cliff and missing the chain three times. The story is that we made it through and escaped. So, mm-hmm. even especially in retrospect, the game is really sitting well with me. So, I just got to get better about how I comment on a game while <laughs> we're playing it. Uh, yeah, I think about your. Uh, I think it was a PM you sent after we first talked about doing the recording for this segment, and um, you're just like, uh, "Oh, this should be an easy recording. Eco sucks." <laughs> <laughs> Or something like that. Yeah. Well, I didn't mean it. Or if I meant yeah. it at the time, I definitely am not s- staying with that opinion. But anyway, we're digressing. Let's uh, mm-hmm. Rich yeah. get back to wrapping up the show. Before we do our final uh, wrap up, I just want to thank everybody for sitting through uh, two hours of us uh, yabbering about this game and uh, for for participating in the playthrough. It was was a lot of fun to to chat and uh, play this game with you guys. I actually really, really enjoyed this game to such an extent that I um, went out on Etsy and ordered myself a eco t-shirt. And... um, a bit of an unfortunate mistake happened that I was uh, mailed a girl's shirt, um, which I, I've cleared that up with the seller and now have the appropriate gender shirt. But I would like to gift that shirt that I was inadvertently mailed to one of our listeners to gift to one of their significant others because uh, the holiday season is approaching. Um, and I will send out uh, the shirt and make correspondence to the first person to comment in the um, wrap-up 
uh, forum thread. All you have to say is you were there. All right. Well, thanks, Floyd. That's really nice. It's a really generous gift to uh, give out to one of our listeners, and I'm sure someone out there will appreciate it. Thank you very much. So that uh, that wraps up our discussion for the modern side in uh, September, our playthrough of Eco. Thanks, guys, for joining us. That was a, a great discussion of the game. That was. And um, in October, we will be playing the Xbox 360 and PC thriller, Alan Wake, and Floyd will be hosting that. It's going to be fun. It's going to be scary. episode six of the art generation community playthrough wrap up I want to thank everyone who participated this month and joined us in our playthroughs please remember that you can find our discussion page on rfgeneration.com we'd love to hear any additional thoughts you may have on these playthroughs or you may leave feedback for our podcast please join us next month as we play castlevania symphony of the night on the retro side i will be hosting that and on the modern side floyd will be hosting xbox 360 and pc exclusive alan wake should be a very spooky month again very special thank you goes out uh, to our co-host on the sui coden 2 podcast mr sir psycho we really appreciate him joining us and again thank you for listening to our show until next time happy gaming